Welcome to episode eight of Two Beats Off. Uh, I'm Justin. I'm here with Steve and MC. Hi, guys. What's going on? It, feels, ta- it feels tacky to keep saying from the quarantine zone or something like that. You know what I mean? It feels a little bit yeah. gauche at this point. We have to acknowledge the elephant in the room, and the elephant is a invisible virus that is trying to kill all of us. <laughs> did they? Did anyone post an article yet that said The Simpsons predicted this? Since oh, yeah, with a, like, like badly, the badly photoshopped coronavirus thing on the news. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I saw that. I didn't. I was genuinely curious because everything that happens, like Trump being elected and everything, they're like, the Simpsons predicted this 12 years ago. Well, when you have, I don't know how many, 4,000 episodes of the Simpsons, they're going to just throw every idea at the wall. So. They're going to have absolutely everything covered, almost. Almost think, everything covered. I think they're over 30 seasons deep with, like, 25 episodes a season. Jeez. So, almost 1,000 episodes. They're getting damn close. Yeah. Nice math. All right, so uh, you guys listen to that Code Orange record? I, uh, so, okay, so, for the listeners, I put out as homework to... Listen to the new Code Orange record, not so that we could shit on it, because I don't. I want to lift people up. I don't want to just spend this whole podcast shitting on it, just because we don't like it. But um, I'm presuming we don't like it. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to like talk about it and as like a move in their career and where and like changing their sound and whether you think they're reaching larger metal audiences and that kind of thing now and how like sustaining their career. So that's the the angle I want to approach this from. So okay. I'm going to start by saying I had never listened to Code Orange before knowingly. Maybe I'd heard it before, but when I put on that new record, the after hearing whatever that weird intro thing was, does, doesn't count, but fir- the first two songs, all I could think is this is exactly what I assume Slipknot sounds like, because I don't think that I have ever intentionally listened to Slipknot either. But in my head, that Code Orange record is what Slipknot sounds like. So I guess that's a good place to start, too. Like, the context, like, what... So you said you're not aware of them otherwise. This is, like, your first conscious listen to Code Orange. Yeah, I mean, I know know who they are. I know they're from, what, Pittsburgh, and I know they used to be Code Orange kids, and they really blew up. They're a big band now. After listening to the record, I got some perspective on it because... I guess they do like wrestling promos for one of the big wrestling leagues. I don't know if it's WWE or something more independent. Pretty sure it's WWE. Okay, well then, then their music is perfect for that. Like that is the music I, I think of when I think of wrestling. It's it's interesting too because Stephen, you listened to them when they first came out, right? Like yeah, I, did. I really like Code Orange Kids, and I really liked. Um, the the after they changed their name was I am King. I am King. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, I, I like that, that one a lot. But I also have like a soft spot for like 90s metallic hardcore. Like I like Disembodied a lot, shit like that. The next one to me was almost a replica of I Am King. So I was a little bored with it. It had uh, a little more industrial stuff in it, if I remember correctly, though, right? A little bit. And I thought that was cool, but it, you know, I'd still rather listen to I Am King, I guess. I don't know. And uh, I, this one, I, I really. I really tried and I listened to the first like three songs and I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. I kind of like this, you know, there's like, I, I do like most of the breakdowns in it. Um, I would, well, I was asking you guys about like your history with it too. Cause I wonder if it's like something that's more or less shocking in context for them starting as like a thrashy grind band and then ending up here. Or if you're just jumping in MC, maybe you didn't know what they sounded like before. Well, so I took the homework to the next level and I went back and I listened to like three or four songs off the first, whatever was on Spotify from Code Orange Kids. And okay. I listened to, I don't know, three three or so tracks off I Am King. I'm, I'm with Steven. The, the Code Orange Kid uh, EP or record that I listened to was actually really, like I liked it. It's not yeah. my thing. I mean, I wouldn't go out of my way to listen to it every day, but it's good. It's enjoyable. They well-written songs heavy cool um even i am king was pretty good i mean again not not a style i'm into but uh i i i liked it the new one i i don't think it's i don't think they're bad as in writing bad songs or bad musicians it's just not our thing not your thing yeah it's not my thing and like so i guess because it's impressive it's impressive some of the guitar work on there is and the drum work is incredible. Yeah. But so I wonder, I heard now that Jamie on that live stream, so I didn't watch the live stream, full disclosure. Steven, you say you watched a little bit of it? I watched, yeah, I watched like five minutes. So, so Jamie's out front now, right? Yeah, he was. Okay, do you, I wonder, I didn't do that part of my homework. I wonder if he played drums on the record and just live is doing the front man thing. I'm not sure. I just I I was okay with it until more songs started to sound like Flyleaf. Well, the the first single, so whatever the first single was, was the first thing obviously I heard from the record. Right. Um, but there was like the singy part that seemed to come out of complete left field because it wasn't even on some of their other records. Yeah. Do you, do you know if that's a band member or if it's like a Code Orange featuring somebody? Well, isn't it Reba? I don't know. Was it Reba? Yeah, she sings in like ten of the songs. Okay. But well, it I was I was unprepared. Yeah, and I was unprepared for it on that first song. It sounded so out of oh. left field because she's been singing little bits on every record, I think. Yeah. But I mean, no, that's so, growling she, a lot. She sang it on the on the live set, so it's fair. Okay. Okay. So uh, I yeah. have a question that I, I didn't really look into this, and maybe I should have. This new record is it like a new label, new producers, something bigger? It's on, because it's on Roadrunner, and I think the last the last one was on Roadrunner, wasn't it? Or did they sign after that? I think Forever was also on Roadrunner. Yes, it was. See. I, I sort of thought when I li- listened to that album and then went back and listened to their earlier albums that it sounded like a band that 
got a deal where they got a bunch of money to go into the studio and do a lot of wild shit that they never got to do before and had a producer who could maybe guide them into something that's a little bit more mainstream air quotes mainstream and that that's kind of what it sounded like to me so So my speculation so off of forever i think that was when they did like a kill switch tour and a slipknot tour right and i'm one and i'm wondering if they saw bands touring with a different size production thing or like saw like the other side of it and maybe it was like oh we can do that now or it's what they always wanted to do which is you know also but i like i don't want to shit on it because no not not at all it's not bad but i don't like it everything is some everything is somebody something i love i love the first seven inch and i think in a lot of ways in that era along with because that was probably around a mid-period trash talk stuff and maybe um What's the black ceremony record on Bridge Nine? Still nothing. Still, yeah, maybe like around that era or Ronert Park era. Like I feel oh, like if yeah. it helps define that era of like thrashy, really fast blast beaty stuff. Like the, power violency kind of. Yeah, the um, this is hell and all that stuff that was happening at the at the time. For sure, I would give it out of ten if I had to a six. Yeah. Because five to me is average, and I may not like it, but it's still like, I think a well-written record. So I'd give it a six, I guess. If anyone's asking me, <laughs> you seemed like you were going to ask me. So I no, I, w- I wasn't going to. I just wanted to talk about it and see how. I don't know because all of us have played in bands, and whether it's expressed or not, I think everybody wishes they could only play in bands and not work. So, oh yeah, like, that would be fun. So is like do you have to do things that like do they have to change their sound in order to not bore people or like is that a is what they did there appealing to the monster truck arena now like did they pull in more people i definitely i definitely think that that's a sound that's going to be more appealing to a have a broader appeal what did they used to what was their like tagline weed out the what the Uh, thinners of the herd thinners of the herd they're not doing that anymore. No. No. But what I did... mean, if if they're writing songs for the WWE, like, I mean, you're writing songs for very, very popular entertainment. Yeah. Entertainment syndicate. I don't know. What, what is WWE? I, I don't call it sports, yeah. but it's definitely like an entertainment conglomerate, conglomerate or something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and they have millions of viewers. I mean, thousands, what, 50,000 people can fit in some of those arenas where they do the live shows. Right. Because it's safe to say that they're going to be losing original fans or hardcore kids on this on a record like this. Right. Oh, yeah. I've seen seen more negative comments about it than positive. But that's the demographic that, you know, they're they're moving away from probably. Yeah, because I guess that's the gamble. Is like for every hardcore kid we lose, do we gain two monster truck fans? Oh, they're <laughs> gaining like six monster truck fans. Yeah. Because yeah. I guess I haven't been to a Hot Topic in a while. Like last time I was there, they had Menzingers and Anti Flag stuff in Hot Topic. Are there Code Orange shirts in Hot Topic? I wouldn't be surprised. They're on Roadrunner. You know. Yeah. That's probably distro to Hot Topic. 
Right, King's Road merch, I'm guessing. Well, even Death Wish is King's Road merch, isn't it? I don't know. When's the last time Anti-Flag put out an album? Oh. Or this year? This year or last year. Really? Is it good? I didn't listen to it, but I have another topic if you guys are ready to segue. Yeah, hey, I think we should do this each week. I think we should pick one. So maybe um, I have three options now because I think Anti-Flag might be a good one. Uh, the Brian Fallon self-titled. Okay. Uh, I didn't the, listen to that yet. Or the Suicide Machines record is now online. Okay, so we'll listen to a new release and kind of deep dive and see where the context sits in their career type deal? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, I like that. I like that too. Um, well, let me write these down. Anti-Flag, like Suicide Machines. I like it because I don't listen to enough new music. I'm definitely the guy that listens to the same like 12 different albums on Spotify and I'm like, hell yeah, this rules. My life's great. And then I hear a new album and I'm like, oh wow, new music happens still. One of the best things about the garage is like, I get to see new bands on a regular basis. It's tough to keep up with anymore, but yeah, I'll hear a new song in like my daily mix number two, because some publicist paid to have a teenage bottle rocket song in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, It's also kind of the reason when I do, when I, when I used to book shows for fun, um, I always made a playlist of as many of the upcoming bands as I could on the playlist, and I tried to get a couple songs from each band, because one, I'd listen to the playlist, and I'd be like, oh, wow, I know these songs when they play live, and also it helps get those bands out there for the people that are in the area that are going to come to see them whenever we're allowed to do that again. I hate turning that into such a bummer, but like it really is. <laughs> It's it's a cloud that hangs over everything. I mean, we're a music podcast. It hangs over everything. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty wild. But um, we can't we can't even be like, so what movie did you see recently without being like, oh well, the same one you saw on Netflix. <laughs> well, so now to to catch up a little bit. So we were talking. I don't know if it was during an interview or one of our last little bullshit sessions, but we were talking about how uh, people are aiming for fall, but it's like packed as far as booking agents go and like people are trying to carve out dates. So Brian Fallon rescheduled all his dates for July. Do you think that's wishful thinking? Yeah. Do we think that'll be canceled again? Yeah. It's tough. Um, I'm, if, if I had to guess, I think most tours, anything bigger, like big, big names, we're talking like July at the earliest. Yeah. I Brian's mid Brian's mid list for sure. I think like 5,000 and under venues, July might be safe. But like if you're going to see a stadium band like Rage Against the Machine, um, right. those shows are probably not happening until the fall. And then on the flip side, like if I'm a booking agent, I'm probably not even thinking about trying to book another show until August or September because. You don't know what might happen. Like, like everyone keeps talking about, is this going to be a V-shaped like thing where the numbers go down and then we're safe? Or is it going to be the numbers go down and then they go back up? Like right, because like a false safe. Like a, yeah. And then we, we all let go, go back out. Yeah. Way too soon. And then, boom, it hits again. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, like, from somebody that books shows on a regular basis at a venue – like I'm normally booking things a minimum of six weeks out, but realistically, like 
eight to 12 weeks out. So right. right now it is close enough to April 1st that I can say it's April. I would be talking about end of June and July. Well, hey, when's our piebald show? That's rescheduled already. What was that set at? I never checked the date, if I'm being totally honest June, with you. June 27th. That seems hopeful for sure. That seems pretty hopeful. And the this uncertainty is pretty wild because – if you're a booking agent, you went from your normal income to no income in the span of a day when like Live Nation and everything shut down. Yeah, and you're gambling really hard that in two months you're gonna have income. I mean they have to because yeah. if let's say, you know, what is it now? April thirtieth they're shooting for is like social distancing. Well, let's say it goes two weeks further than that and you're in the middle of May and all of a sudden like things are allowed to happen again. If you aren't planning things right now, now you're it gets to May 15th. If you're starting to plan on May 15th, you're talking August at that point. Yeah, you're behind and, the curve for sure. And you have now wiped out four or five months of income by not having shit planned already. See, we it's knew a- this was coming. That's why Reservoir stopped playing so many shows because we didn't want to deal with all the, the hubbub <laughs> and stuff. So, Steven, is, you think is that why? You yeah, think the why. Reservoir June 27th is optimistic? I think so. I think, Cause yeah. We we have a show the night before at JB Love Drafts that I'm really wanting to happen. Now, Stephen, uh, are you looking at the Chameleon's calendar? Are we in the first wave of reschedules? Or what's the first rescheduled date at the Chameleon? I don't know. I only know that one because I just got an update that the event changed its name. Okay. I'd be curious to, I mean, we don't have to have dead air and look it up, but I'd be curious to know what the first rescheduled day at the chameleon is or if certain clubs that would have been homework to do like, i did text brandon and ask if he wanted to hop on but uh, oh, yeah. I, have, I haven't heard back from him so i'm assuming he's probably doing something yeah um, i feel like but, he should be in an interview at some point he told us he doesn't want to do like a structured interview he just wants to be on for like an hour and like shoot the shit and talk yeah that's kind of how the interviews work <laughs> yeah but whatever but he, you know how we ask you questions about the garage, but we're not like interviewing you about your life yet. Yeah, yeah. We'll dive. We'll do the decontrolled deep dive at some point. Don't worry. So the, oh, the God, I found some old pictures. Uh, April tenth is the that first have... chameleon show. Mark Rizzo of Soulfly is at the Lizard Lounge. <laughs> I should 10th, laugh. The districts are April seventeenth. Oh, yeah, Brandon, Brandon texted me that he's sleeping. How do you think? <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> so I didn't listen to the new anti-flag record, but you mentioned them, and I was—I've been thinking about something, Stephen. And you guys might have more insight than me because you guys still play shows and are kind of boots on the ground in this topic. So when Trump got elected, one of the things everyone said was, "Well, at least we'll get a whole bunch of really good punk songs out of this." Do you think that happened? Now, I mean, three I'm... three years in, do you think that happened? I've heard a couple songs about Donald Trump directly, and they were pretty not good. Nowhere near as good as the post, or not post, but like the Bush era of punk music. Nowhere near as many good records as that. So with that, though, like punk, especially like the street punk thing, definitely had a golden era in like the mid and late 90s. So like those bands were kind of at their peak when Bush got elected in 2000. So yeah. they had, there was a ton of good bands, not just the street punk bands. I mean, like a lot no, of fact. like 
no, no effects. effects it comes to mind like they were just at the point where they stopped just writing all goofy stuff and started writing some more serious stuff and like when fat mike puts his mind to something like he is a very intelligent individual whether you like his approach or not um right like he's he, most of the time he is right you just hate the way that he's saying it and you hate that you have to be like god i hate that i'm agreeing with this so kind of like a michael face, moore his face bothers me so much michael moore is perfect example of the same kind of thing like i agree with almost everything michael moore says but the way he does it and the way he says it and he's almost like so fucking smug about it that i want it i want him to be wrong even though i agree with him <laughs> right so follow-up question while we're discussing this now looking back does something like no effects war on errorism seem tacky in retrospect i thought it was tacky when it came out i hated that record I hated <laughs> oh there's there's some great songs on that record. Not like I owned it. I bought it. Yeah. I didn't answer taken over is a great song. But um, I honestly like I didn't like much no effects. I liked uh the decline and I liked a few songs off each record, but a lot of their records just the guess, same fucking song over and over and over again. I, I guess my larger question is more so for political the decline is kind of generalized. Are very specific political songs gauche and tacky because they only apply to like a certain four-year period will things written specifically about trump look really stupid in 10 years i hope so i because so when i look back on songs that i liked the most from that era it was songs and like i was pretty young then so like anti-flag was super impressionable for me but they wrote like songs about specific instances and like for sure. Spe Those songs and, don't hold up. But even propaganda, like certain things, like I feel like I learned shit from them. So it still holds like something to me because I gained knowledge from it, aside from just like fuck the president, anarchy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so propaganda, though, in my eyes, and definitely like strike anywhere i feel like their songs hold up really well because they don't they might write something about a specific incident but the song itself is not solely about that specific incident it is about that whole like the reason that incident is happening yeah. right like chalk lines about misogyny and the patriarchy at large rather than just a like a single thing yeah like rather than one specific incident that happened that inspired it which there so, might have been one specific incident that inspired it but the song is about the whole not just the let me just say this as a 15 year old i really enjoyed without knowing what the fuck i was talking about listening to anti-flag and being able to say to someone the wto kills farmers <laughs> well, but man i was in i remember being in history class and they're like yeah, well, we're going to talk about the counterintelligence program. And I raised my hand like, do you mean CoinTelPro? <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, friend... friends like these. <laughs> yeah, who the fuck needs CoinTelPro? <laughs> but, uh, man, I was this like, depleted uranium is a war crime. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, wasn't there an Against All Authority song about depleted uranium too? No, Strontium, like, I know oh. where to the way to Strontium Nine or something. Yeah, something. Yeah, yikes. So that 
this topic is full of uh, full of follow-ups. So another to pop in here is now in the time of like the constant news cycle and everything changing so quickly, is recording an album a dinosaur format that's way too late and everything political you put on it won't be relevant by the time you record a full length? I mean, I feel like that comes down to not really because you can get things out so much faster now. Like you can record an album, have it produced and really in like a couple weeks turnaround, you can be posting it on Spotify. If anything, you can turn it around faster than ever right now. But like, again, if you're writing songs about a very specific event and like only referencing that specific event and not how it affects a greater thing, you are writing songs that are just built to be dated. Yeah. I, I I think of some of the like eighties and nineties, like punk and disorderly comps that I picked up at various music stores over the years where some of those English bands had songs about the Tories and Margaret Thatcher and like, well, like some of those songs are still cool songs today. No kid's going to get the reference whatsoever because they don't know who the Tories are or even who Margaret Thatcher is unless they're studying that in their history class right now. Follow up to Justin's uh, Against Authority song is called The Source of Strontium 90. Hell yeah. All I'm going to say is their best song is All Ages Show. I have a going off those things. I have three questions. First question. What's that? Dink is when I close my eyes. My favorite song. Oh, Dink is why I close my eyes is your favorite? Yeah. What's the one? There's one about cooking breakfast on that album. (laughs) (laughs) I'll find it. But I have a question for you guys. Along with that, are political songs not timely and tacky? When you guys played with DOA, did they play the song where they just chant, you fucked up Ronnie over and over about Ronald Reagan? feel like they did but they, they didn't stuff going on they were way better than i expected i think we've discussed this steven yeah but did they, we talk they had... about that on on air i know i asked you guys about the addicts and you guys were really impressed with them i don't know if i asked you about doa yeah but the addicts i expected to be good because i've seen them before and every time i've seen them they are amazing live and doa yeah. Like, I'm familiar with DOA. Like, I like Hardcore 81. It was a good album. I had no idea what to expect out of them, you know, 40 years after their prime or whatever, or like their big their big records. And right. I think they sounded great live. They had tons of energy. Yeah. And like, they were, I mean, they were super nice. I mean, they took stupid pictures with us. And like, when people were at the merch table, they were hanging out and chit-chatting with them, so... They talked to me about propaganda. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I asked them, I was like, so, because they were like, we're in, from like the middle of nowhere, like Western Canada. I was like, so do you know propaganda? He's like, well, not that every band in Canada knows every other band in Canada, but oddly enough, yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> when you said they had a lot of energy, I was going to ask you how old Joe Shithead was, uh, but I just looked it up and he's 63. So that's Ooh. awesome. That means he started that band when he was like 13 or 14. Probably, yeah. Um, It says years active, 1977 to present. So, yeah. So, MC, going back with what you were um, talking about with how it's quick to get things out again, I don't know how much of a Neil Young fan you are, but that song, Ohio, about the Kent State Massacre, they turned that over in like three days, like 
it was on the it went from like being written to recorded to on the radio in like three days. That's really impressive, especially for that era. Yeah, because they had a stu- well, they had a studio like at their beck and call. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, it's the parallels of how everything kind of cyclical and circled back are interesting. And I also wanted to note that I heard an interview with Weird Al where he said he was moving towards singles-based releases because he wants to keep things timely and not do a full record and just do like. If something happens, he wants to be able to pump the single out and pop it on Spotify. So he's doing digital singles now as his main mode of releases. Weird Al? Yeah. Okay. Weird Al, yeah. Cool. Weird Alan Yankovic. Okay. Um, he's better Steven, when he had glasses. Steven, the Against All Authority song I was thinking about about breakfast is um, it's called Alba, and it's on tw- the 24-hour... Roadside resistance. And it's black beans on the stove, Malta in my hand, tears in Alba's eyes as she dreams of a faraway land. So it's not breakfast necessarily, but I eat black beans for breakfast a lot. So when I hear black beans on the stove, I think about breakfast. You know what I could go for? What? Huevos Rancheros. Oh, I can always go for Huevos Rancheros. Yeah. Lois made jambalaya and I fried an egg and put it on top of it and let the yolk run all inside the jambalaya. Oh, man, it was good. Yeah, what was the restaurant we ate at in Asbury Park that I got where it was Rancheros at? Uh, probably Toast. Is that where it was? Almost certainly. It was really good. On Cookman Avenue, kind of like hipstery. Yeah. Do you guys think I'm going to get to see Rancid in May? (laughs) Nope. Oh, yeah. Do you have tickets? Yeah. Is it the Boston to Berkeley thing again? Yeah. Did you buy enough tickets that you'll have two to sell me when it happens again, like last year? I think I have one spare as of right now. <laughs> Did you buy twenty tickets? No, <laughs> like, I bought like I bought. I think I at the point at that point I could only afford four or five. All right. Without further ado, let's go to the interview with uh, Ryan from Think Fast Records and Outbreak. Oh there, shit! There you are. Whoop whoop! Hey, don't know what I did there, but here I am. <laughs> how are you, bro? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's good to see you via technology. Yeah. A wild time. I tried. I I have like six Ryan's that I've called tonight. Ryan P. O'Connors. Oh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad no one else picked up and we didn't have another Ryan O'Connor. <laughs> yeah, I've done that before, uh, interviewing people on Skype, uh, just calling the wrong person like three times in a row before I get the right one. Yeah, you think they make it a little bit easier. Yeah, 2020, man. Fuck. But Okay, yeah, here we are. We, we found each other. Oh, my God. Why won't my sister stop calling me? Tell her you're busy, bud. Yeah, tell, this is important business that's being taken care of right now. <laughs> did I tell you we interviewed Chad on when did we do that? Sunday? You mentioned it yeah. through text. Yeah, I haven't talked to him in a while. Yeah, he was funny. <laughs> yeah, good guy. Such a good guy. Great guy, yeah. Uh, so, what's up, Brian? What have you been up to? Dude, I've been up to too much. Too much? Yeah, like legitimately too much going on. Do you have like, to go? <laughs> yeah, actually, I got to cut this short right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Are we, 
is this are we are we already beginning or is this like a pre-recorded thing that we're doing right now i mean it's begun but it doesn't have to have begun okay you're saying that you have editing skills i have a thing i can click on and sometimes it works out gotcha yeah (laughs) but yeah no no it it depends uh you had a pretty good uh hello so i don't know i don't mind it okay right on yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh do you do you remember justin because we played well you guys played our the first reservoir show he was in reservoir with me oh no shit yeah 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 Yeah. we might have met for about 30 seconds so don't feel bad okay (laughs) i mean Maybe a little bit, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> it was, holy shit, eight years ago. Wow. Eight, or nine years ago. Nine. Eight. Was it 2011? Yep. Holy shit. Yeah, we're shit. old. Yeah. We're, we're very old. I was just having a similar conversation with someone, and we were referencing shows that we went to, or whatever, events in life. And it was like, oh, yeah, I think that was 22 or was it 23 years ago? And I was like, holy shit. Like when you start getting into the multiple decade references, I feel like it's all downhill from there. Like you're officially fucking old. I'm only the, the, the probably I think I can go back maybe. 16 or 17 years. I didn't get multiple yet. Okay, yeah, you're still a little baby. Yeah, 29, baby. Just turned 29, yeah. (laughs) I was always, well, everyone was always older than me. I don't know how that happened, but it did. Now you're a a grown man. Well, yeah, something like that. I I don't know if my, like, parents or my mom would agree, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um... Well, hey, yeah, let's what um, I don't know if I really went over the podcast, but basically what we do is we start as far back as we can, how you got into punk and hardcore and then what you did with it and what you're up to now. So well, um, remember like being a kid and getting into any sort of alternative rock music or whatever it was that was your gateway? Good question. Um, I have specific memories of um having appetite for destruction uh, on cassette and hiding it from my grandmother when she was going to come over to visit so i guess to answer your question going back to really really young you know like literally six seven eight years old i always gravitated towards i guess heavy music um so from there uh you know typical as a 12, 13-year-old have the older brother that's going to punk rock and hardcore shows, bringing home, you know, sick of it all tapes, and then just kind of discovering it that way. Do you remember what your very first uh, tape or record was? Was it that, uh, um, was it that record or? Um, I definitely remember uh, Integrity, Humanity is the Devil. Okay. Uh, being one of those early ones uh, that that I discovered, being like, "Whoa, what the fuck is this? This is crazy," in a good way. Um, so that was definitely one of them. Um, I can't think. Of, maybe "All at War" by uh, Earth Crisis, their first EP. Okay. So did you grow up with your grandmother then? 
No, that was just a really random reference that I remember <laughs> from being yeah, super young. I remember us making jokes about your mother calling you while you were trying to sign bands. <laughs> You'd be like, stop it, Mom. I'm trying to sign football. <laughs> it's like not not exactly like with my mom, but definitely I lived with my parents until my early 20s. And uh, yeah, running a business and you know, whatever other crazy ventures I had going on, that was always pretty funny to be like, yeah, this is mostly happening like in my dad's basement. <laughs> Did you grow up in Maine then? <clears throat> Say that again? Did you grow up in Maine? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what was that like, growing up with cold winters and shitty snow and mooses, moose, moose, mooses? Yeah, it, it sucked for the most part. I mean, Maine is beautiful. There's very little crime. It's kind of one of those stereotypical places where you hear about, oh, people don't lock their front door, yada, yada. Right. So, uh, I mean, in my 30s, like, cool, that sounds pretty nice. But as like a 13 or 14 year old, you're like, this fucking sucks. There's nothing to do. Um, so it was, uh, I guess, boring in that sense growing up in that um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it gives you a different perspective on life too, especially as you end up traveling more. Well, you're pretty far out there, aren't you? You're not like in Portland or Bangor or something like that. I was, yeah. I'm actually in Los Angeles now, but I spent, uh, most of my life, uh, in central Maine. Wait, you're in LA now? Yeah. Sorry, LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> hey, what, Justin, what do you want to ask him about me? About you? No, about me. Not about me. Jesus. Bro, this is supposed to be about me, okay? <laughs> yeah, about me. Not <laughs> I don't remember, but I do have a question now. Um, so how far did you have to go for punk shows when you first started going to them? Like, what was the drive like? Most of them were extremely far, which is hilarious to think about now, being in L.A., because... Literally, if the show is not in my neighborhood, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck that. That's like four miles. I'm not going to fucking Venice. Um, but we would go, I mean, we would go to Providence, Rhode Island sometimes. I remember going to shows in Burlington, Vermont, um, Boston all the time, Worcester, Western Mass. And I mean, some of these places like Boston was a good four hours. Yeah. Um, okay. So when a good show, like a good hardcore show uh, was in Portland, which wasn't completely the norm. You know, it's still kind of like a random stop for a lot of bands. Um, but even when we were lucky enough to get those shows in Portland, that was two hours. So that was considered like, oh, that's easy. Um, which again, you know, now it's like, wow, what a lazy fucking asshole I am. <laughs> um, I mean, at least it's not like fucking middle of Colorado that, 12 hours is the closest thing like that's get... true that's very true i remember being in uh parts of western canada central canada as well so like edmonton and you know some of those cities that are just surrounded by fucking miles and miles of nothing and um hearing stories about those kids going to punk shows and being like Oh, yeah, we had to travel, you know, 12 and a half hours to see so-and-so, like some mediocre, like, tour <laughs> that we wouldn't even really think twice about. Um, so you're right. Yeah, like, you could be—it it could always be worse. Right. Yeah. So 
it was Stephen King. Have you ever met Stephen King? Uh, yeah, we're best buddies. I lived right next door to him. Yeah, I inspired uh, most of uh, his work. Uh, no, I've actually <laughs> never met Stephen King. Uh, his, uh, I believe it's his summer house because there's no way he spends winters here now. Um, but I, or maybe he does. I don't. I wouldn't think so. But um, yeah, he bang. He grew up, or his house rather was in Bangor, which was like a hour plus uh, in the opposite direction. It was like east, uh, eastern Maine. Um, so yeah, outside of him being like a cultural phenomenon that kind of like put Maine pop culture on the map at times, I I never met him, or you know, yeah. And you moved away before you could. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I think he has a house in Florida. That's what most people in Maine do, especially as they get older. So I'm sure he doesn't spend too much time there. Snowbirds. Yeah, exactly. I guess I kind of did that. Like, I was going to Florida for a number of winters, and now I've been in California for about a year and a half. So, yeah, fuck those winters, man. Those are too brutal. Yeah, my dad lived in Portland for a while, and I just remember him calling me and be like, yep, my front yard's like four feet deep in snow, and uh, he didn't he didn't really move very well anyway. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just being stuck inside all the time doesn't sound very enthusing. No, and everything becomes a big chore. So, oh, I need to get groceries. Um, okay, it's minus 15 degrees, so I got to go warm up the car, and then I've got to put multiple layers on so I don't get frostbite. It's just like, I mean, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but there's definitely times in January and February in Maine where uh, you, or I would literally question, like, what am I doing like this is insane i feel like it's the fucking 1400s or something and i should be foraging for food because i'm literally fucking burning firewood like to stay warm like there was an electric furnace as well but like the primary like way to heat your house was firewood so i'm i don't know I, maybe i'm glad i went through going through that just to experience it <laughs> and maybe it makes you appreciate things in life more um but struggle yeah. struggle builds character thank you at least that's what i tell myself and you're totally like a cut off t-shirt type person too so i can't imagine that maine is the best place for you anyway <laughs> are you referring to playing shows yeah i would always have the cut off but um not so not so much uh in day-to-day -day life anymore not like shoveling snow no no <laughs> <laughs> so um what i'm assuming most people don't start a good band their first time around i'm assuming outbreak wasn't your first band what was the very first band you ever started this is um i don't know if outbreak was a good one either oh. um we had like uh when i was in high school one of the sort of early incarnations of outbreak was um, myself, uh, my brother, my older brother, who got me into punk and hardcore, um, and our mutual buddy, Kyle. And uh, a drum. the drummer was also the first drummer of Outbreak. His name was Ira. And so we had uh, 
I, we never recorded anything. We would just like practice and create songs and then play shows um, that we'd book ourselves in like a VFW and just invite all our friends and a bunch of people who had no idea what hardcore was that were just young and, you know, bored and wanted something to do on a Friday or Saturday. Right. Um, so with that shitty band, um, <laughs> we, yeah, we never like had a demo or anything. Uh, the name, uh, was Captain Blacktooth, which was kind of like a, a joke name about like this weirdo that, uh, lived in the town that we grew up in. <laughs> oh, Captain Blacktooth. What's his story? Um, he was kind of like that aging rocker in your town who like still has the long hair, um, and like the shitty tattoos or whatever, and talks about like the glory days of like when he like maybe said two words to like fucking Kirk Hammock or something, you know, just like. <laughs> That old aging rocker guy that you and your friends kind of make fun of behind his back. That sounds really mean, but, um, you know, not, you're not mean to his face, but just like that dude that you're like, oh, God, like, what's he going to fucking talk right. about this time? Yeah. Like the the rock version of Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> who's just kind of, you know. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I guess, haha, you know, high school kids, we're going to name our band after this crazy guy in our town. Okay. So that was kind of members of Outbreak then. You just, that's how Outbreak formed, I'm assuming, then just getting better and then some members switching around, stuff like that. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. I actually, it, God, it was so long ago now, I legitimately can't even remember how that dissolved and it turned into like, oh, okay, we're going to, take this quote unquote seriously um but yeah exactly like you said things kind of shifted around and then um you know our primary songwriter chuck uh our mutual buddy that we went to high school with joined um and then we decided to make a recording and then that turns into a seven inch and then a seven inch gets the attention of bridge nine and then you know it just kind of you climb the the hardcore ladder you know trying to just get your music out there i guess right so how old were you when outbreak started you were pretty young weren't you yeah we were uh i was 17 yeah so we were writing like our first songs when i was like barely 17 okay who'd you um who'd you record that first seven inch with uh that uh was what the fuck was his name um, I believe it was not, I keep wanting to say dead air cause that's where we recorded our demo and we ended up recording a bunch of, uh, other shit there later on. Um, but we recorded our first seven inch with this random, like quote unquote producer in Portland, Maine, who didn't really know what hardcore was for the most part. So, you know, he was doing your typical like rock bands or whatever. Yeah. So to, I remember to go to him uh, with what we were doing, like, he was kind of like, what, like, you guys are fucking crazy. Like, what is this? You know, like, yeah. are you, like, is the check going to clear? Like, who the fuck <laughs> are you kids? Um, and God, I wish I could remember his fucking name, but, uh, it's escaping me at the moment. I have to Google it like anyone else, I guess. <laughs> 
was that kind of a weird process then recording the first seven inch there or yeah it was horrifying i yeah. like for one um i had the first like vocals i had ever recorded uh for a hardcore band were our first demo which uh was awful like most bands demos yeah. um so then um getting over that and then going in with like a guy who was uh, like going into a pretty what felt like a legitimate studio and not like a punk rock setup um to be that young to have no idea what i was doing and just like screaming into a microphone it was like <laughs> there was a lot of anxiety that went along with that um but yeah, it was a, a really weird process. But I guess somehow what came out of it, like um, I still can't really listen to it. It's like kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but like what came out of that was kind of getting us to a next step where we did something a little bit cooler. And, you know, we kind of ended up who knew, you know, ending up uh, getting to do a lot of really cool shit. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead, but you can totally see the progression of your vocals from uh, eating alive through you make a sick to the very last full length where you can tell it's a more uh, healthy way of yelling in a hardcore band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the screamings like on key and like, yeah. Like even through you make a sick, it's like, like you can, like, it sounds great. It's one of my favorite hardcore records. of all. Ah, thank you very much. But like, you can tell towards then you're like, shit, this isn't good for me. Maybe I should like switch it up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of it too is taking in a lot of what like vocalist A told you versus what vocalist B. And then you go out on a cool tour with so-and-so and their singers like, oh, no, 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 man, you got to warm up like this and you got to do this. And, you know, being a young like dumb kid who like doesn't really have any like musical ability i'm just like oh well i've seen other hardcore and punk rock bands like put on a crazy memorable show and i can totally do what their singer is doing but yeah you'd like um over time you know i did at least get more comfortable figuring out what i was supposed to be doing and um on the other side trying to stay healthy on tour too because screaming at the top of your lungs every night for weeks and sometimes like you know you'll play 38 39 shows in 40 days you can really fuck yourself up so what like you were 17 when outbreak started when how old were you when you guys did your first real tour like not like a weekend tour or like uh whatever but your first kind of longer tour i was either 17 or 18 at the time i want to say 17 um actually no because i remember i was a senior in high school at the time and we had like a february break and we booked our own tour down to florida and back so prior to that we had done we'd done some out-of-town shows like we'd done a couple of random like middle of nowhere canadian shows we'd played a few times in boston and, uh, you know, all over New England and whatnot. But that was our first, even though it wasn't a lot of shows, that was our first, like, whoa, we're traveling to states that I've never even been to in my life. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, I believe I was 18 at the time, like when we did our first quote unquote real tour, um, if that even counts as a real tour, I don't know. 
I think if you go from Maine to Florida, that that qualifies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that fits the definition of the word tour in some way, even if like the shows are awful and whatnot. <laughs> and when most bands do the East Coast, they'll do like five states. You legitimately did the entire fucking East Coast. <laughs> we didn't play every state on the way down or the way up. In fact, like the entire thing was a complete fucking disaster. Um, <laughs> but we did play a very fun show in Florida. So um, I guess um, our first full U.S. tour um, was May of 2004. I don't know why that month and year always stuck with me. Um but um, probably because it's the first time I ever went to California, and now I'm here. Um, but the first time uh, really, really doing, you know, that many shows in a row, you know, 20, 30, uh, doing that full U.S. and hitting all these states that I had never been to. So, yeah, it was all pretty pretty early on, I guess. So, obviously, you were in, like you said, you were in high school when you did that first tour, and I, presumably you were living at home. How was that— um, for your parents, like, what was their reaction when you're like, mom, I'm going to go to fucking Florida and play a bunch of shit? <laughs> I don't know if I would always give them the full truth. Really? Uh, maybe uh, try and downplay it a little bit. But in general, um, they were always extremely fucking cool and supportive and trustworthy. Um, I think like most parents— I can definitely recall times, uh, at least with my mom, where she's like, you're doing what? You know, like, kind of, are you sure that you know what the fuck you're doing? Which is totally understandable. Um, but in general, um, they were really supportive. Like, my dad would even, like, just the fact that we were traveling so much, um, and he knew that it was somewhat legitimate because before tour, um, at least in the tours when we started to, like, uh, actually you know, build a little bit of a following. Um, we would get these boxes of t-shirts delivered from Merch Now in Albany. So my dad would like come home from work and there would be like 25 fucking giant boxes of like t-shirts that say your scum on them and stuff. <laughs> so I think like, uh, he knew that, um, there, it was somewhat legitimate, um, and he was, yeah, just, like, really, really supportive, and my mom as well. And, um, yeah, so even though it was all, like, a little bit, like, crazy, um, especially, I mean, you know how it is out on the road. Like, you, there's some crazy shit that you see, and it's, like, yeah. a bunch of dudes crammed in a van, like, if you're doing smaller tours and— yeah, it's pretty dangerous. But anyway, yeah, I guess I was lucky to have uh, parents that were cool with it. Yeah, I think, I mean, Justin and I can probably both relate. I, we both grew up with pretty supportive, like my mom would sign off on educational trip forms so I could go on tour, like my <laughs> last two years. In so. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Yeah, I, well, what you, I guess I was probably graduated when we did the Think Fast tour. But either way, she was pretty supportive. Yeah, you were still very, very young then. If yeah. you weren't in high school, you were not very far out of high school. <laughs> I think I was nine. If it was it was 2010, then I was 19, yeah. Uh, have your parents listened to you, you Make Us Sick? Yeah, they've, they've heard it. Um, they, yeah, I just remember times where they would, like, play it for someone and be like, ha, like, look how crazy it is. And I'd always just be like, oh, my God, please, like, get me out of this fucking room um 
But yeah, I mean, looking back, I mean, some of it's it's pretty fucking angry music, man. Like, <laughs> like I don't know what else to say about it. It's just like a really fucking uh, yeah. We just made some angry music. I see. It's for me. It's hard to like. I play drums, so like I could be like, "Hey, listen to my band." My mom would be like, "What's he pissed about?" I'd be like, "I don't know. Ask him." You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Why can't so, I understand the words? Right. So as being a frontman, I'm sure it's different. And I mean, Justin was in a very like political punk. Justin, do you ever parents ask you what "I didn't vote to die" means? Oh, for sure. Especially because I was too young to vote when I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's a. That to me is such a foreign concept. I've never had my mom to like, like she found lyrics I wrote when I was in like middle school about going crabbing or something. And I never had gone <laughs> crabbing. <laughs> Just because it was in the fish tank of my fish I had, it was a little sign that said, go crabbing. It was like, we were a song about crabbing. Um, but I never had to deal with my mom being like, hey, you Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had one or two of those when they find the lyric book that with all the scrapped stuff and be like hey uh you going through some shit i don't know about yeah. <laughs> so when you guys did that full us did you make a sick come out already or was that afterwards it was really weird because it came out immediately after the tour so immediately after we got home we went out again so we did back-to-back -back u.s tours okay. um which in retrospect, when I look back, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, why would we do that? Yeah. Um, but it almost seems like uh, it worked out really well because we were so young and we had like a pretty crazy live show. So I feel like we hit all these cool little spots on that first tour and then got people really excited being like, hey, we'll be back in five weeks. Um, and then the next round of shows, sure enough, was fucking crazier than the first one. So how did you hook up with Bridge Nine then? Um, so I have a buddy, Jay Reason. Uh, we actually are business partners um, uh, with another label uh, right now. But um, he was in a band called The Distance who had signed to Bridge Nine. And I had a webzine. Um, so I knew Jay through that webzine. This is when I was like literally like 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, so anyway, through that webzine, when I was a little fucking kid, I met Jay Reason. Um, he had sent uh, his demo of the distance of, to my website, my webzine for review. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a great fucking demo. And we ended up talking. Um, one of our first like weekend tours was with the distance. So anyway, the distance Jay's band signs to bridge nine. And, um, he's like, dude, like I've seen your shows. Like I fucking can't believe you're not on bridge nine. Like we need to make it happen. Um, so I owe Jay for that. Yeah. He introed me to Chris Wren and, um, we started talking and then, uh, Chris put out the next couple of records. Um, when did you guys start, or I guess you didn't start ThinkFest. When did you hook up with Larry for ThinkFest? Um, the first release that I um, really put together was um, number 14, which was the Turning Point um, discography uh, on vinyl for the first time. Right. Um, so that would have been, that was 04, 2004. Yeah. So Larry, my business partner with ThinkFest, uh, had started that label a few years prior to that. 
are you guys still, you're are you done with think faster is it just kind of like a no we're we're not done we didn't do any uh last year was actually the first year that we did zero releases um ever uh the label had never done the releases in a year yeah. um and the year prior to that we did a couple of cool records for record store day like we reissued uh only living witness uh pro mortal forum on vinyl uh-huh. and um we did uh, The Killing Tree, which is uh, Tim Micklerath from Rise Against uh, first band, or actually not his first band, but a band he was doing uh, early on while he was doing Rise Against um, is fucking fantastic LP. Uh, yeah, that band's The Killing Tree. Um, so aside from those uh, reissues, um, yeah, we just took uh, last year off. Um, and um, hopefully we'll do, you know, I want to do at least one or two records this year if, like, the right thing comes along. But as of uh, prior to last year, we were mostly just doing reissues. Okay. So, Larry, actually, Larry went on one of my friend's podcasts, which anyone listening should check out, uh, Getting It Out. It's a podcast. Justin, you know Dan Crayley? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he does a podcast called Getting Out. He had Larry on it. Um Speaking of Larry, there was a point in my life and in Reignition's career where we called every bald person we knew a Larry. Did you know Larry when he had hair? <laughs> yes, I did. What was that like? Uh, it was crazy, man. Uh, it was a wild time. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, no, I've known Larry for a long time. Um, that webzine that I mentioned um, I met him through that. So when he had first started Think Fast, um, I have, I met him at a fest called Posse Numbers, which okay. was it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I met him, I think it was 2001. Um, so I would have been 16 years old at the time. And uh, he had just put out a seven inch for a band called Not a Chance and then a split seven inch with his band at the time, uh, Flame Still Burns. A split with them and Die Hard Youth, a California hardcore band. Okay. And um, I remember buying those at the fest and then talking to him, and then we kind of kept in touch, and um, the rest is history, as they say. I still have not met Larry. Really? Yeah, never met him. Yeah, he's still in uh, southwest Florida. Yeah, I watch his stand-up stuff every now and then. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he's, uh, I think, going to be out here in a week or two. Oh, shit, really? Yeah, he's playing a club in Pasadena. Although I didn't know he was going that far with it. Yeah, yeah, he's been out here. I think this is his second or third time out here. Nice. Uh, Sorry, I got off topic there a little bit. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I've been all over the place, too. There was a couple of your questions that um, once I arrived at the quote-unquote end of my answer, I was like, did I answer the fucking question? (laughs) (laughs) It happens. We're, st- I mean, this is like our eighth interview, so we're still kind of getting used to this, you know. Right on. Um, so you guys did that split with Only Crime. How did you hook up with them, and how awesome is Russ? Um, I've never met Russ actually. Um, we had toured with uh, Bane. Uh, I don't know who your listeners are, but uh, most people who listen to hardcore would know Bane, especially uh, from the two thousands. Um, so they, um, we had toured with them a whole bunch and through them, um, I met their guitarist, uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron Bedard is a singer, Aaron Dahlbeck, the guitarist, um, played in Only Crime. And, uh, so 
he was like, hey, I've got this new band. Uh, you know, I've toured with you, you know, yeah. blah, 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 blah. How about doing a split seven inch? And uh, we said yes. And then it came out and it was really fun. Um, actually, I still talk with Zach Blair. He plays in Rise Against now. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. You've always been a big Rise Against guy, huh? Yeah, they're they're fucking great. They're great. Um, I I love uh, kind of remind me of like a like maybe a modern uh, Rage Against the Machine or just kind of like that band that can be a gateway band for people to discover other punk rock and whatnot that maybe see them at a show with a day to remember um, and then take home some of the lyrics and shit like that. And I think it's really cool when a band. Uh, gets as big as they have and like still like have a positive message and you know give people something to take away from it especially young vulnerable kids because there's so much shitty mainstream music like it's it's rough out there yeah and and it's cool because they're not shy about their influences either they'll talk about minor threat and stuff like that and cover them still yeah yeah how big they are so definitely but yeah it was kind of a weird coincidence because uh their their old guitarist uh, Sassy, uh, he played in a band Reach the Sky, who I was a huge fan of when I was like getting into hardcore. Like if you were in the Northeast, uh, Reach the Sky would play like every fucking weekend. It seemed like a show in Boston or in Maine. Um, so talking with Sassy, um, we had literally we would trade records. And I remember trying to get uh, his copy of Revolutions Per Minute, um, like on orange or red or some shit. And he was like, oh, no way. Like, I'm not going to trade you that. Like, I love that fucking record. Well, he got the call up to join the band. So I thought it was awesome that, you know, he joined like this dude that came from like the same scene. And then they ended up fucking blowing up. And then, um, yeah, oddly enough, we did that split with Only Crime, who was the guitarist who replaced him. So, but yeah, yeah great, great, great fucking band. Uh, I try and see those guys anytime I can. So, it, you mentioned Rage Against the Machine. You might not give a shit or whatever. What are your thoughts on Rage Against the Machine doing a reunion tour and charging upwards of three hundred dollars per ticket to go see them? Wow, is that what they were charging? Uh, in some dates, I'm not going to lie, and I need to apologize because I talked a lot of shit on Rage Against the Machine in the first episode for uh, Coachella. Uh, they, they're they donating proceeds from the Texas shows to some sort of charity. But TJ and I both bought tickets for $150 to see him in D.C. Apparently, <laughs> are $300 plus to go see him. Uh, how do you feel about a band like that? doing something in that vein i mean younger me would maybe be like oh my god that's so not punk like i can't believe Ticketmaster, fucking live nation blah 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 blah, blah. but yeah. i i mean more but power man. to them yeah <laughs> like <laughs> that's how i um, felt when i said okay tj spend whatever you have to <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he texted me he's like yo so this is probably gonna be expensive are you cool with paying whatever i gotta pay and I was like, I mean, if it's kind of unreasonable but not totally unreasonable, yes. And that's where we ended up. I don't think 150 is that bad. I mean, I it's mean, it's a lot, but I never I, paid I, that much to see a band in my life. But I'm doing it. Oh, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> I think I pay, I paid a hundred bucks to see Springsteen one time. Well, and Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't expect to pay thirty bucks to see Bruce Springsteen. That's fair. 
I mean, a band is a business, even though it sounds weird saying that, especially when you're referencing someone like Rage Against the Machine. Um, and I'm not like a fanboy of them whatsoever. I was just using them as a reference to like, oh, a band that's like right. kind of political and not like other mainstream bands that's maybe influencing kids to, you know, a gateway band, you might say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, a band is a business, so uh, they're... I mean, should they do their reunion tour in like uh, 300 capacity clubs so they can have quote unquote scene cred in their 50s or however old they are? I mean, yeah, maybe some of those prices are insane, um, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to bet that the guys in Rage didn't pick the ticket prices. And at least until his check comes in, there's probably some part of Zach that's like, is this a little fucked up? Yeah, <laughs> there's something to do with ticket scalpers and the way they price it and how they're handling it to avoid scalpers. I don't. Uh, I didn't. Is that what? Is that the flux? I should know this as someone who's like still pretty involved in the music industry. But what's the fluctuating ticket price? Is that what you're referring to? Because I've seen that uh, the last couple of times that I bought tickets. I I don't know. I just so I didn't buy the TJ bought the tickets for me. I just clicked. I'm an idiot, and I clicked the Facebook link to the announcement for the tickets going on sale, and people were losing their fucking shit. And someone was like, $300. I was like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> you got mine for 150 I guess yours is really fucking expensive. Sorry, bud. Maybe you should live on the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, for a special reunion show, too, or a band that you've just been dying to see, um, I personally, I would pay a lot of money for that. I'm not going to pay that every weekend for like a show that's kind of good or whatever. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, they're I guess they're charging what the market is willing to pay. Um, but about that, I saw the last couple of times that I used uh, Ticketmaster, what was called the fluctuating price, which yeah. I haven't really done too much research on, but just being a nerd and i mean it does seem like it's pretty sketchy actually i'd be curious to see how that works but how i interpret it um because i remember reading some articles um when my chemical romance just announced their reunion tour of um people paying um a premium price because of demand so basically how i interpreted that was oh the site sees that there's sixty thousand people in this queue waiting to get tickets so let's try charging whatever we can get away with until people won't pay it i don't know i'm sure there's something wow. more fucking scientific to it than that but it seemed like kind of a almost a raffle like who i don't know it was, it was really weird that's yep. pretty shifty yeah, yeah. Why are we talking about – I can't remember how we got here. I don't know, but now I want to ask you what band would you pay the most money to see? Uh, like active or are we talking a band that's coming back from the dead? Yeah, sure, all time. I think at this point the only band that could reunite would probably be Minor Threat for me to be like – I would go – I would probably go pretty far to see that show. Um, everything else on charge much either, which kind of works out. Yeah. It'd be like $5 <laughs> yeah. like, plus like a donation to the YMCA or something. Um, what was like, I, for, I lost my train of thought with that. Uh, oh yeah. But like, it seems like every band has already reunited. Like, did you see the black and blue lineup that was announced a couple of weeks ago? No, I didn't. 
it's i mean don't get me wrong like if anything it got my attention seeing it um but it was like gorilla biscuits sick of it all agnostic front uh bands like from yesteryear right so, yeah it's just crazy i kind of i don't know i stopped paying attention to black and blue i don't know why yeah, I still look at Lamb Goat like uh, right. during the week just to see like what tours are going on, what bands are up to. Um, even if I'm not like as actively involved in the hardcore scene uh, in 2020, which I'm most certainly not, I still, uh, for lack of better terms, I, I like to keep tabs and see what's going on. So let's let's get back on track here. I'm gonna get us back on track. You guys okay? okay? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, do it. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, failure. Failure came out, obviously, after you make us sick. What was the difference uh, writing and recording failure versus you make us sick? Um, oh, yeah. By the way, earlier when I was referencing our first record, um, I was referring to Eaten Alive, our first seven inch. So right. yeah. uh, just to be clear, because we recorded uh, You Make Us Sick with the very, very fucking amazing Don Fury, um, which is a... It was a very special time, so I don't want to get my first story confused. Um, he's going to be pissed when he hears this. Yeah, he's like, what the fuck, Ryan? I, I haven't talked to the dude in like 10 years. Um, uh, so wait, what was your question? Like differences you can cite between recording failure when you've already been an established band, you've done tours, you've been you've already put out a record on Bridge Nine, writing and recording it versus you make us sick or even eaten alive. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess just to give the cliche, generic answer, uh, you progress as a band. So it, it, at least for me, it got a lot easier by then. So going into the studio wasn't this daunting fucking task. Um, but I mean, most of the songs just came together the same way, just a bunch of us getting together, um, sometimes in like an abandoned warehouse, <laughs> the earliest stuff that we put together. Um, but yeah, just a bunch of dudes jamming. And then I wouldn't usually do too much with vocals. I was like shy at practice and sometimes it would like piss off the other band members. Like, dude, we need to hear the vocals. Um, <laughs> You know, um, so I'd uh, sometimes uh, probably most of the time, to be honest, like they would hear the vocals for the first time, like as uh, if we hadn't been playing the songs live, like as I'm laying them down in the studio. Um, but yeah, to get back to your question, it was definitely just a, a more uh, a more, uh, I don't know, comfortable feeling going into it, um, which is maybe not a good thing. Maybe like maybe that hurt the record. I don't know. <laughs> Was that the same members? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Okay. Fuck, I'd have to go on our Wikipedia page to be certain, though. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Speaking of the Wikipedia page, mm -hmm. Justin and I try to do research, and by research, that means we go to the Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. North Park 1417 was the last person to edit your Wikipedia page one okay. year ago. They're a banned user. Do you know North Park 1417? It doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> well, they're banned now, and I'm assuming they did something fucked up. So. Okay. That was a year ago? Yeah, they update your Wikipedia a year ago. Does it say what they tried to update? Because last I remember, there was a name spelled incorrectly. It won't say because they're blocked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, I don't know. I thought that was funny, though. Um, when... So, when when recording fear, 
That was the second one for Bridge Nine? Yeah, so our third overall record, but yeah, our second uh, record that people were kind of noticing, I guess. Did, did you feel any kind of pressure as a growing band with people? Like, did you feel like people were expecting a certain thing or waiting for it to come out? Or did you have any of those kind of expectations hanging on you when you made it? I don't remember, to be honest. I don't think so. We were just too young and dumb. Um I want to say that we maybe put more time and thought into the songs on failure um, because recording uh, You Make a Sick Prior was a complete shit show. Um, So maybe just a more focused effort, which, again, may not really be the best thing for a hardcore or a punk rock band. Sometimes, like, uh, you know, that gives it its charm when it's rough around the edges. Um, But, yeah. So Australia, South America, the U.S., Europe, um, what was it like being able to, like, write hardcore punk songs about just stuff that pissed you off and that being the opportunity to essentially see almost the entire world and tour off of that? It's pretty fucking weird to be honest like it's really weird and sometimes i feel guilty because there will be bands that are so much fucking more talented than we were that like don't get the same opportunities but i think that kind of just goes to show that a lot of it's just like how you hustle so um you know running that webzine and creating contacts all over the world eventually um but making enough connections to be able to easily put together tours and it's almost like um all that early stuff kind of laid the foundation for um you know getting to do some of the later stuff i think i'm kind of getting off track here no you're good do you have any like wild or funny tour stories from uh europe uh south uh, south america sorry or uh australia Uh, dude there's a there's a lot that that happens on the road what's the saying like what goes on the road stays on the road or something like that <laughs> what's the dumbest thing you can remember doing um dumb. <laughs> dude <laughs> I get myself in trouble with some of these answers um i would just say I, i'm there's no shortage of dumb shit that we i mean how about like booking shows that are fucking 800 miles apart like in one night in the middle of february six months in advance you're like oh this will be fine like and then you're like wait why are we in fucking northwestern canada on january 16th like whose idea is this um so you make a lot of really dumb decisions like that at least we did um at least i did because i mean i handled a lot of the band's quote-unquote business during those times booked a lot of the early tours and whatnot um but yeah, just stuff like that. Um, I, I mean, there was a, I'll never forget this one show we played in Kansas City. The owner or the promoter of the venue getting run over by a car from some guy that we pissed off because he didn't like us lighting off fireworks. You know, you get to the show, you load in fucking four hours early, bunch of early 20s idiots fucking hanging around like probably in the shittier part of town based on most of the venues that we played especially early on um but i saw the owner of this venue get run over by a fucking guy because of fireworks that we were lighting off um and of course we knew it was crazy at the time but 
decades later or a decade and a half later, you look back on some of that and you're like, that was pretty fucking crazy. Like I, I could have been, I probably should have been killed on multiple occasions. One more quick one. I remember in, uh, somewhere in Alabama, us and, uh, the band down to nothing were on tour together. And those guys were always fucking lunatics, like way, like I was straight edge at the time. And most of uh, the members of the band were as well. So like, we weren't really, we were like crazy skater kids, but we weren't like, you know, crazy, like drunk assholes or whatever. Um, but that being said, DTN, uh, down to nothing were the craziest. And like all those guys were straight edge or were at the time. And, um, yeah, they would like put, like put us to shame, just do crazy shit. And I don't know exactly what we did to um, piss off the locals, but I remember being in Alabama, some small shitty town, I'm sure. Um, sorry to any of your listeners in Alabama. Um, yeah, about that. <laughs> uh, but it was definitely like, at the very least, not a good part of town. Um, us and down to nothing are fucking around. This guy like fucking pulls out a gun and starts like shooting it in the air, like a pistol. And like, I just remember like backing away and being like, okay, it's time to go guys. Like no more fucking around. Um, so yeah, I guess to get back to your question, just thinking back of like little things like that, that happened on the road that you think back at now, it's like, I'm very lucky that like we didn't get into a lot of trouble. Right. Was that more terrifying or was St. Louis more terrifying? The St. Louis fucking melee. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Terrifying. Uh, they both, they both sucked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Fair enough. Are you still straight edge? Uh, no, no, I'm not. When did you break edge? Let's I want to hear your edge break story. Okay. So I moved to LA a year and a half ago. I want to say within a, a month of being in LA, I was corrupted and I can no longer hold the straight edge card. Um, to be honest, I felt like um, I was kind of drifting away from, like, as cliche as it sounds, like, it felt silly to me to put, like, that label on myself. Um, and, I, I mean, again, I feel like uh, I'm bumming out, like, my straight edge friends when I say this, but, like, if my dad wants to have a beer with me, I just don't really see that as, like, a an issue. Yeah, like something that I can, you know, like handle responsibly as a dude that's 35. Um, So, you know, with instances like that that come along, like um, if I'm, you know, not going to call myself straight edge, then I just I don't care enough to, you know, do that. But, um, yeah, that being said, like uh, alcohol, fucking nasty. only at least for me useful um if you need to quote unquote loosen up like if you have like a big networking meetup or something like it it's definitely helped loosen me up in that sense but um yeah in general i think drinking is fucking disgusting and i try and avoid it <laughs> right okay heroin on the other hand whew. that's that's shit <laughs> right yeah it's just funny because most um it seems like most people, at least when I was younger, when they would quote unquote break edge, 
it would never be like, oh, yeah, I had a couple of beers or, you know, oh, I smoked weed. It was always like, oh, yeah, that dude does crack now. Like, it was always <laughs> crazy. <laughs> no, I think I was at a friend's house and I was just like, you know what? Can I have a beer? And I drank <laughs> one. And he's like, you're not. And gonna then you turned your back on your brothers, man. Yeah, and then he's like, you're not yeah. going to blame this on me, are you? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I think it's a little bit different, too, when you're not surrounded by, like, the culture and the mentality on such a consistent basis like you are when you're playing and touring in hardcore bands. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, and that being said, I think Straight Edge is still fucking awesome. And, like, I'll always have like a soft spot like when i see kids like xing up at a show and i mean that can it probably helps steer me like from getting into drugs like uh other family members have but um i i was straight edge for i mean if you consider when i first started going to punk rock shows i was you know 13 14 years old um and to go 20 years without touching that like i probably have straight edge to thank for that so who knows uh where i could be or um the shit that i could have gotten myself into if i hadn't found that subculture i mean honestly yeah sorry yeah. go ahead oh i was just gonna say i'm really thankful that i was straight edge through college i think that was really important at least for me and i have that soft spot too it's why i haven't gotten rid of my watch Oh, hell yeah. I, I respect that, man. Wear that shit every day if you want. X up, too. No. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I should do that. <laughs> I was impressed, honestly. I thought you were going to be like, yeah, dude, I broke edge like 10 years ago. <laughs> no, I held strong. And then um, it, I hate the cliche of like uh, the loosen, loosen you up, like, oh, just have a few drinks, man. But I will say, like, it culturally it, – it's always, oh, let's meet up for drinks. Let's meet up for drinks. Right. Like, yeah. And I pulled that off without drinking for a very long period of time. So that shows. What's that? Now you're in LA. Yeah. Now I'm in LA. So, you know, like, I don't know what they drink here. Like, a, I can't even, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> like a Cosmo. Is that a drink? I don't fuck. It is. Yeah. If it wasn't before it is now i'm sure it is yeah i'm sure it is and i'm sure lots of assholes in la drink it so <laughs> fuck them <laughs> so failure came out you guys toured a shit ton you toured fucking everywhere and then you worked on the self-titled was the, the self-titled you put out yourself right yeah uh, kind of i mean i put it out through think fast um but we had um Trustkill distributing it and they had just signed a uni- uh, distribution deal with Universal at the time um so I guess you could technically say I self-released it uh but we managed right. to have uh, distribution <laughs> from a major label well, what was your relationship with them like because I know they have a little bit of infamy for being kind of a sketchy label in sorts of ways did you have any issues with them or was it a pretty good no josh was always really really cool to me um he was uh, especially when i was younger um you know whether you order a seven inch and you like are wondering where the fuck it is three months later so you hit up the label or whatever i can't remember what i had emailed him about like josh directly so not like a manager at trustkill.com email um but I remember hitting him up and he just immediately responded with an answer. And I was like, what the fuck? It's, you know, probably 1030 on a Tuesday or some shit. Um, 
So that being said, um, working with him in a business sense, um, it was kind of a weird time for like both of us because I think Trustkill was he was trying. I can't remember if he was trying to keep it going right then, but it was he had something happened with his distribution deal. I don't fucking know. But it was also a time where like things were really really cooling off with Outbreak. Um, so I was fine with how everything went. I mean, he got us on the Saw soundtrack, which was really cool. Um, then, you know, you at least have that one thing that like you can tell people, oh, well, we were on this, you know, typo negative was on it or so and so. Yeah, I wanted to like talk about that a little bit. So he got um, you that? Yeah. So I, I can't say anything bad about Josh. Um, and uh, say another guy that fits in that category uh, Tony Brummel, uh, Victory Records. Granted, he uh, just sold it for a pretty penny and seemed to make out pretty well. Yeah. Um, but early on, uh, talking to him about God knows what, I can't even remember, um, always a dude um, that would get back to me super quickly and would give me the time of day. Maybe at times when I didn't even deserve it because, you know, there's you're busy when you get to the level that he was at. Um so yeah, he was just another dude that I always read a lot of really awful things about, um, but was always really, really cool to deal with in person. Help us get him. We want him on here. Tony Brummel? Yeah. I have his cell phone number. Yes. We just, <laughs> well, we just, we did Nathan uh, Gray from Boy Sets Fire and we talked. Oh, nice. Um, so we, he's on our list for whatever reason, he's at the top of it of people we want to get on the podcast, maybe necessary, maybe more so to clear the air for himself than anything. Gotcha. I, I would definitely watch that. I get the impression he doesn't really do, uh, too many interviews like, yeah, right. um, yeah. out of his own choice, of course. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, dude, I just talked to him a few months ago before he sold victory we, um, I told you I have an, another label, uh, that's not think fast, uh, where yeah, yeah. we mo mostly do some, uh, soundtracks and like nineties reissues, um, or a lot of first time releases for the nineties stuff. Um, but, um, with that label, um, we, uh, wanted to license a grade record from victory records, uh, head first straight to hell. It was a, underrated grade record in my opinion um that had like a really shitty vinyl release when it first came out like a picture disc or something that is hard to find now and sounded like shit and that whole like i think it, it was the mix um of that record too sounded like complete dog shit so it was a good candidate to like do a proper reissue especially for vinyl so uh long story short i hit up tony brummel at this point this was a few months ago i hadn't talked to him in many years um and uh, send him an uh, email, like a cold email. Um, and within like a couple of minutes, I have a Chicago number on my phone. And he's like, what the fuck are you trying to do? Like, what do you want to do? Like, why are you bothering me? <laughs> um, we ended up having a, a really, really good conversation. But um, he's definitely a crazy motherfucker. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um. I feel like that story is very anticlimactic, by the way. Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I think he'd be fun to interview with no preconceptions. Like, I have no dealings with him. Steven has no dealings with him. I'd just like to do a straight interview and see where he takes it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I guess my point of that ramble earlier was... 
talking to him, like he's all over the place, just as like eccentric and crazy as you would hope. Yeah. Um, but the fact that he like takes the time, at least to me, I'm like, oh, that's cool of him, you know? Right. So did you have to pay to go see Saul 6 or did you get free tickets? <laughs> Dude, to be 100% honest, I've never seen that movie. That is a dick move, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't even say, oh, our song is in this exact part. When no, that whole, to be honest, that whole soundtrack is kind of like whack. Like it's uh, like songs inspired from the movie. So th the musical score, I'm sure, is like fucking Hans Zimmer, you know, someone who created the score for it. And then like just to like capitalize on the Saw brand, they want to put out like a compilation of quote unquote heavy metal horror, you know, music. Um, so, yeah, it's just like even though our music isn't in the movie, it's like one of those uh, things that you can tell a person on the street and they would like, oh, I, I maybe know what Saw is. So that yeah. was like our, our quote unquote claim to fame, you know, that came out uh, the same year. Uh, the self-title came out and yeah, toured a bunch off that. Was that when did um like Brian and um like Perkins and everyone else join the band? Was that switch up before the self-title came out? Um, yeah, it was just before uh, the self-titled. Uh, so in between failure and the self-titled, um, yeah, we went through like some pretty crazy lineup changes. At that point, our drummer and uh, our guitarist, Linkovich, um, they started another hardcore band called Cruel Hand that was like at, definitely at that time starting to kind of pick up steam and tour more, become more busy. Um, so, yeah, that would have been right around some of our my last shows with Linkovich, I remember, were 2008. And then the self-titled came out, I think, November of 2009. Was it just kind of a, hey, we're doing this new band and it's picking up, we can only do one thing? Or how did that... Um... Yeah, I think it was more that. Like, Outbreak was always, like, kind of uh, my band, uh, to sound like an egotistical prick. But I feel like most bands always kind of have that one or two dudes that, like handle most of the business and like make sure that everything's like fire yeah firing on all cylinders yeah. um so i feel like that became me for a while um for better or for worse probably for worse a lot of the time um but yeah you you end up spending a, a lot of time together and um you end up like maybe uh, one analogy um or comparison that i usually make is when you go to college and your a dorm mate is like your best friend from high school, and then after a semester of living together in an enclosed area, you're like, oh, my God, I fucking hate this person. Um, <laughs> like, it, it wasn't that bad for us, but um, at least for myself, I remember becoming like kind of very detached from everyone else. Um, I sound like a VH1 behind the music, like, oh, yes, I was like, I was feeling very emotional. And like, that's when I started doing coke. Um, but no, it's just like, you know, started like f wanting less and less to be in an enclosed area with the same dudes, like sometimes for fucking months at a time. Um, and at the same time that like there's kind of this riff in the band, um, their bands like um 
it's theirs. They created it. Like they're writing the songs and writing the lyrics and handling the business and like, um, finding like a cool label to put out their seven inch. And like, that's a really fucking like liberating feeling, I think. So I can't blame them at all. Um, and so, yeah, at at that point it was like, all right, you dudes are doing this other thing. Well, I'm going to find dudes that like want to go to Japan next month because that tour is already booked. And, um, it was fun. And then we just kept doing a few more tours until it kind of ran its course. So when Brian joined the band, did you even have him play guitar? Did you just see how high he could jump? Cause he could jump literally higher with the guitar than anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, strictly, uh, just seeing how high he could jump. Okay. That's what yeah. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you guys still keep in touch? Brian, yes. Um, we talked through Instagram and through text once in a while. And then um, I was in uh, New York for WrestleMania last year. So I, he lives in New York. So I got to hang out with him there as well, which was really, really cool. He got bubble tea with us when we when Reservoir played New York once. What yeah. happened? We, were you with us, Justin? Yep. Yeah, yeah. We uh, Reservoir played uh, Brooklyn, and I just texted him. Like on a whim, it was like, hey, we're playing Brooklyn. Want to meet up? And he's like, yeah, here, come here. And then he like walked us to a place. And he's like, we'll get bubble tea. <laughs> he had bubble tea. He he had shit going on, so he didn't come to the show. So it was like, we met. That sounds more tea. LA than than the <laughs> shit you made fun of me for earlier, for sure. <laughs> so we had bubble tea for like a half hour, and I was like, all right, good seeing you later. <laughs> wow. But it was cool. It was good to see him. That was fucking. That was like six or seven years ago now, too. So, yeah, good. Such a. I I love that guy so much. I wouldn't want to fight him. No, I've seen his gram, his Instagram. Like he's. Uh, I don't even know what the fuck he does. He's told me a little bit about it, but I didn't really follow. But some sort of mixed martial arts that um I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't want to fuck with him either. Yeah, I think he takes his shirt off and hits people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. So, um, how did Outbreak kind of end then? Did you guys make that uh, like a conscious decision, or was I it- did? Yeah, I didn't really yeah. tell anyone. Um, so, <laughs> legitimately, I just well, actually, that's not true. I remember, uh, I remember telling Billy, I was like, "Dude, I never want to play a show again." <laughs> um, and then I like stuck to that. Um, but um, we. Uh, that's like, I guess the funny, but also true version of the story. Um, the other version, which is also true is we did a tour with sick of it all. And they were one of the first hardcore bands that I got into. I forgot to name uh, scratch the surface, uh, and built to last to some of the first cassettes uh, that I owned at the beginning of our conversation, by the way. Okay. Um, but, um, we did a tour with sick of it all. And I had wanted to tour with them for years. Their agent, at least at the time, was Stormy Shepherd, And I bugged the shit out of her, um, especially as, like, because um, I booked uh, other bands for a couple of years as well, as you know. And uh, so I had kind of had a relationship with her, and I'd hit her up just enough to, like, try not to be annoying, but to, like, keep my band's name in her head. But I was like, I really want to fucking tour. I was sick of it all. And one of my favorite, like, live hardcore bands to just always fucking bring it. Um, so we had gotten, like, the Chromex tour and Tim Borer at the agency group at the time. 
um, had given us like Mad Ball tours, and we had gotten Agnostic Front. So we'd done all these like cool fucking like New York hardcore bands. Um, I really wanted the Sick of It All one. We finally got it. It was kind of a weird run of like B markets and like Texas and the Midwest. Um, so some of the shows were amazing. Some of them were like not so amazing, but we were supporting Sick of It All. And I got to sing Rat Pack on stage one night, which was really, really cool for me. And um, yeah, after that tour, I was like maybe at like a crossroads in my life as well, or at least you're in your mid twenties. Um, like, okay, am I going to be like rolling up to the fucking VFW, like in a few years headlining? Like that's right. like, I don't want to be that guy. Um, and I have a lot of fucking respect for people that are just like willing to fucking keep it going at all costs. Like whether they're like, main market is Europe, but they still tour the States just because they, you know, need to do it or whatever. But it, it wasn't really for me, at least like roughing it in a van anymore. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we kind of talked about that in the, uh, in the Greg Benneket interview that not they're sick of it all is the rare exception. I think how long was outbreak a band? Like it's like 10 years. Yeah, like 10 years. That's pretty fucking good for a hardcore band. So not everyone is going to be like the agnostic front or the sick of it all that keeps touring for until they're like, was Roger Merritt like 75 now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no, not many people want to be like 100 years old and still playing hardcore shows. So I think yeah. – I, 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 you're definitely a pretty humble person as far as the impact that your band has had on the hardcore scene oh, and not just your you. band, but your <laughs> label. But I think that 10 years with a band that's put out three full lengths and like obviously influenced a ton of people to start bands of their own or whatever is a pretty good run. Thank you. I appreciate that. I almost wish, um, well, I can't say that cause we did a lot of cool stuff later on, but, um, I, it, I wish we could have gone out like maybe on a higher note, like at our fucking peak, how, you know, how some hardcore bands just kind of disappear like that. Yeah. Um, I think that would have been cool, but I just didn't know how to do anything else at the time. It was like such a part of me that I couldn't even imagine like not doing it, which is kind of funny like now, cause it's like, there's very like, it would take like a million dollars to get me to tour the U.S. again. And even then, I would probably be like, I don't know, like, is that taxed? Like, how does that going to work? What do you consider Outbreak's peak then? Uh, probably like 2004. Okay. As far as like, and I'm not saying that's like when our best quote unquote like music came out, because I feel like I, the only record I can like kind of listen to is the last one we did yeah. in 2009. Um, but even that's like, eh. Um, but I would say we were at like the height of our uh, popularity um, probably in 04. I just remember playing a couple of shows in just having like a fucking sea of people like singing every word and it's like whoa like we've we, we're doing something here right and i mean at that time you guys were kind of like the shiny new toy like you just signed to bridge nine and like everyone's stoked on that and then yeah yeah totally whoever comes someone else comes around and they're always the next new best hardcore band so it doesn't yeah forever. It, exactly exactly but it was really fun you know I'd love to 
do a little more research now that I just had this theory that I thought about how you didn't do a last show. And I think about how, well, I last show in air quotes, you know what I mean? The big publicized, because yeah. I feel like bands do that and then go, wait, if we could just do it like that over and over, we wouldn't need to quit. And I'd love to <laughs> I'd love to see some graph of bands that did last shows versus just broke up, whether they got back together and kept doing it or not. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can't imagine um, Outbreak ever playing a show, really. Once in a while, I'll get like a like Linkovich, uh, our guitarist, our, uh, one of our guitarists. Um, he uh, plays in Terror now. Um, so I actually just caught up with him a few months ago as well. But he'll text me sometimes and be like, dude, we got to do sound and fury. And, um, for like a split second, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, that'll be awesome. Like at one point I got so psyched, I texted Chris Wren and I was like, dude, we should do a new seven inch. And now of course I'm like, fuck, because, uh, he responded positively. He's like, Oh, let, like, let's talk, like, let's do it. You know, something. Um, right. and then the next day I was like, Oh, I really don't want to play a show though. So like, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it could be fun, but I don't know. I just like have this fear that it would go over like poorly and like, I don't want to play like to, you know, big fucking horseshoe or like to six people singing along. Like it would need to like be, I don't know. I just think it'd be sad like in that. So it's almost like that was what I was doing when I was younger. Like some of those songs were literally probably 16 when some of that shit was written um so to also while it would be f always fun to play shows like pretending that i'm like the dude who the same dude now who like penned some of those fucking genius lyrics <laughs> like i'm not even going to pretend that i can relate to that dude anymore so do you think you'd be like HR from Bad Brains and you guys would play Sound and Fury and you'd put your hands behind your back and stand in front of a mic on a mic stand and just go The story I remember about him is him singing to like a bird inside of a bird cage that he was like holding <laughs> on stage um, But sure, yeah, something like that yeah. that's, that's kind of amazing <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to like come down the stage like Shawn Michaels at that like Wrestlemania like from a zip line. Like, that's how I want to enter. If they can't make the show happen like that, then I'm not in. I feel like I feel like have heart fucked up hardcore reunions for everybody, because now if you don't put 8000 people in a parking lot, like in the summer, it just doesn't look as big. Dude, those pictures from that show are so fucking insane. I don't know if you guys were there or I was. But, yeah. yeah, Justin went without me. It's crazy. Just like a, a hardcore show at like a rock star scale, <laughs> you know, just fucking sea of people. So fucking wild. And, and it still felt like a hardcore show. Like, I know it's like oh, weird. The pictures looked like, it. I mean, people going fucking crazy. Like, yeah. I mean, if it was like some arena or big theater or something with a barricade, it would not be nearly as fucking cool. I, I was going to say like on the converse side, I saw, Agnostic Front opened up for the original Misfits in a stadium, and that was not nearly as cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, that tour uh, was out here as well, but I, uh, I actually broke my knee uh, skateboarding uh, last year, so I didn't uh, feel like making it out to the show with uh, crutches. <laughs> so I, we, we've been going like hour 20 minutes. I want to get to— Holy like... shit, are you kidding me? Right, we're fun <laughs> to talk to, right? 
Wow, apparently so. <laughs> yeah, but I want to get to what you're up to now because obviously you have the other label that probably no one in hardcore really knows about. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. That label is called War God. Um, WarGodCollective.com has like our releases and link to our store and everything. Um, but um, yeah, it's just uh, mostly was born out of um, some releases that I had access to reissuing that didn't really make sense to do on a label that had predominantly done hardcore records. So um, I started a new venture. Yeah, I called it War God, and we've done um, a lot of uh, weird uh, soundtracks, some horror stuff um, to uh, reissues of 90s records or first time issues, a lot of like alternative rock. Um, so, you know, people listening to your podcast are into hardcore. It's probably nothing that they would care about. Um, but, you know, from bands like Sponge or Eve Six or Stabbing Westward. I um, like Six. Yeah, Eve Six is fan. Those guys are fucking uh, amazing, too. They're the best. Um, so, yeah, we, we're doing stuff like that with the label. Um, and then, um, yeah, I have a, a full-time gig uh, doing web, uh, basically web design, marketing, some light social media management um, with an animal rights organization. Um, and then I also have uh, my freelance clients um, from prior to taking the gig with the animal rights org. Um, so businesses that I do uh, a lot of like mostly WordPress development for. Um, so needless to say, I'm keeping busy. I think I told you I have that wrestling Instagram to wrestle botch. Yeah, I don't even like wrestling and it's great. Thank you. You'll have to tell me your username after we get off. Um, yeah. Um, I just thought it would be funny to highlight the worst slash funniest parts of pro wrestling. Um, and to put it in a format that would be really easily digestible. So like mini videos on Instagram, like, uh, I never had vine, um, or what was the one before that? I can't remember. It's TikTok now. That's oh yeah. Yeah. Or it used to be vine now, like kids use TikTok. but I guess like thinking of, uh, that micro video that's super shareable, um, that you don't need to watch wrestling to appreciate how fucking hilarious it is because like I grew up. Uh, loving pro wrestling like into my teens um, and then kind of fell out of it for a while um, for a long time um, but um, looking back at some of that stuff now especially the stuff I watched like as a young kid um, the nostalgia is there which is amazing but like some of the blunders that you just completely <laughs> miss as a kid are legitimately like fucking hysterical so I thought it would be funny to, you know, start posting them. And like people have done other things. Like there's a dude that goes by Botcha Mania that's been around like since 2005. Yeah. So like, you know, a blooper reel isn't exactly like a new concept, but I didn't see anyone doing it on Instagram and I didn't see them doing it in a way that I thought was like really, really funny. Um, so I just started posting some shit and then like, Stone Cold Steve Austin somehow found the page and started following. And then it just like exploded. Like the rock started following it and like commented on a couple of videos. Yeah. And so it sort of turned into this fucking beast. Um, and yeah, so now it's uh, just like another, 
another fucking thing that I have to think about on a day-to-day <laughs> basis, in addition to everything else that I described prior to that. <laughs> That's kind of, I mean, you kind of answer my next question, because when you sent it to me, I was like, oh, I'll check out his Instagram, whatever. And then I looked, I was like, holy shit, there's a fuck, like a fuck ton of followers. And I'm sure you didn't expect it to take off like it did. No, but um, yeah, that's just a testament to people really like to like see people fuck up. I like to think of it um, just having a buddy uh, with uh, his name's Paige, the Megan boys in Canada. Um, I was having a conversation with him and uh, he described it as, you know, what you're doing isn't mean spirited. It's celebrating failure. And um, it's like, you know what, like maybe I'm just trying to justify like my asshole account, but I'm like, you know what, he's fucking right. Uh, no, but honestly, I think that's why uh, a lot of the wrestlers in like um, not just wrestlers, there's actors and comedians and whatever influencers that follow it. But um, I think if it was mean spirited, those people wouldn't follow along or maybe they would. But um, I do like to try and keep it like fun. So it's not just like anytime someone fucking fuck something up by a quarter of an inch that I'm like immediately uploading it to laugh at them. Um, it's not, it's not really that, but yeah, I think that kind of contributed to some of the success was keeping it like lighthearted and fun. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I didn't expect when, <laughs> when you sent me the link that it was like that big, but that's awesome. And I mean, it seems like you got a ton of shit going for you now. So it's good to hear, especially moving out to LA, because I know that can be kind of a stressful, you know, area to move to, especially when you're from a central Maine. You know, I mean? yeah, I lived in central Maine for 10 years prior to that. Um, like growing up with my parents was actually even further a uh, northwest, like what's considered the western mountains of Maine. Um, so yeah, definitely some. I, I can see how there would be culture shock, but I think after touring so much and I'd been to California 20 fucking times. So I had a pretty good idea of what I was in for. Like you're going to have awful traffic and really fucking expensive rent. So outside of that, it's like, you know, you, you know what you're signing up for. Right. Totally. So I think we're going to wrap it up here since we're at about an hour and a half and that's a pretty fucking long time. Um, Justin, do you want to finish up with the last question? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, before before we do that, is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanna wanna talk about or promote or? Uh, not really. I mean, Russell Botch, Russell Botch is doing well. Uh, War God has I the number of titles that we have coming out um, either later this year or next year, depending on what happens with this thing with Universal, is absurd. I don't know where the time is going to come from. Um, but yeah, between that and again, you know, basically a day job, you know, for the animal rights organization, there's just uh, no, really no time in the day for anything else uh, for the worst sometimes, you know, having like somewhat of a social life. So uh, what is your most embarrassing moment from either middle or high school? Oof, oof. Um, can I name one from like three months ago? <laughs> absolutely because i can yeah like that my clumsiness uh managed to follow me for 35 years um to answer the first part high school i definitely remember vividly 
that stereotypical tripping on something in front of like the cool girl that you have a crush on while like the jocks are literally like pointing and laughing at you. Like one of those sort of like fucking traumatic like falls that would be like an American pie or something. And that's um, make us sick was written. <laughs> probably. Yeah. <it's> angry dude. <laughs> that I definitely recall that and just being like, Oh, you fucking idiot. Um, recently I was, uh, attending a show um, it was uh, a client, um, and it was a seated venue, like a theater. Um, I was walking into the venue around like the second or third song or something like that, so everyone's already seated. Uh, this is an artist that uh, mostly appeals to, uh, like his heyday was the 70s, so you'd imagine his audience is mostly, you know, 50, 60 plus, um, definitely 50 plus. Um, so... I'm going to my seat mid song and um, it, it's kind of an upscale setting. So I'm wearing like a semi nice jacket that I don't normally wear that I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm on the guest list at this fancy show. Like I'm going to put on my fucking big boy jacket, um, which in hindsight was apparently a really bad mistake. Um, walking to my seat and my jacket gets caught on this woman who's sitting in front of me. And um, I am Im- immediately see what's happening. Like, I'm yanking her head. Like, my jacket's, like, trying to fall <laughs> off. And she, it, have you seen uh, There's Something About Mary? Yeah. Uh, you know the opening scene where he gets caught in the zipper and then, like, the fucking fire department shows up and, like, the local, you know, nosy neighbors peeking in? Right. This... Like, that's what it felt like, because it's right in the middle of this theater, and, like, everyone's just getting seated, and then there's, I'm just, like, fighting with my jacket, like, and this is going on for way longer than it should. This isn't, like, a six or seven second. This is, like, probably in, like, the 70 to 80 second neighborhood of, like, people trying to help, and this woman, like, semi yelling (laughs) at some points, and, like... I can just feel my face like more red than it has ever been like physically sweating. Like the, I I thought for sure that like they, it was good. The song was going to end. And then like the singer would see like, what is this fucking commotion like happening? You know, make mention of it. And then he sees that it's me, his client. And I was just like, Outside of that happening, which, uh, like, that would have put it, like, in the immediately have to, like, kill yourself after or, like, set yourself on fire. Outside of that, it was, like, just so humiliating. Like, her date, like, ended up helping. Like, my date was, like, trying to assist. I remember giving her a look, like, fucking, you're a woman. Fix this somehow. It's a hair issue. Like, you know, this isn't, like, you know how to fix this because clearly I'm a fucking idiot and, like, I can't. You know what I mean? Um, So, yeah, that was, uh, and I still think about, that was probably maybe six months ago at this point, and I still think back at that, and I'm like, that's pretty fucking high on the mountain of embarrassing shit. Like, um, I had one, um, like, Alice Cooper-style moment um, from Wayne's World when um, um, I met, uh, like, a pretty prolific, like, music manager, and I made some joke about, like, uh, that just 
went over like a fucking bag of shit and like they, <laughs> i guess my sarcasm like isn't easily read sometimes but yeah there's no i could i'm sorry i could fucking talk all night about like embarrassing shit that's happened to me there's no no shortage of it <laughs> i can relate to sarcasm not going over very well for sure yeah yeah that's a that's a tough one man the average person doesn't pick up on sarcasm and like i refuse to adapt so i just roll with my fucking dry humor and if you're on board great and if not then stay the fuck out of my lane <laughs> <laughs> that's my sign off for this yeah that yeah, was that's... great i don't know if we could edge better than that <laughs> yeah that's per- that's perfect yeah <laughs> holy shit all right no that was great well Thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad we were able to get you on. I, I love chatting with you guys. I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, no. No, it wasn't. That, that wasn't convincing. You got like really, your voice got super high. And you're like, oh, no, it was, it was That's good. That's how I talk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but holy shit. Yeah, no, that was great. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Boys. Um, yeah, we'll keep in touch and uh, maybe do it again sometime. Sounds great. Have me on again. All right. Sounds good, bud. Good talking. Right. Bye, guys. Thanks. Have a good night. Thanks, Ryan. Bye. All right. Well, we learned some new stuff about Ryan from ThinkFast there, huh? <laughs> sure did. Whoa. Steve, sometimes, Steve, your I smell shit face makes me feel so bad about myself. My what? You're like, I just stepped in shit face. You're, you're just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one. The one you do whenever I say something embarrassing. You're like, ugh. <laughs> I, I love it, though. It's perfect. I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think that's true. All right. Hold on. Before we get going too far here. Jacob Langley. Still in Carlisle, still quarantined, still not allowed to drive his stupid van everywhere. Sorry, it's not a stupid van. I love big vans, but like he's not allowed to travel. He has been quarantined. Although he's uh, he's deceiving everyone because I think he's posting photos from his last tour, like right now as we speak. So it looks like he's on the road. I saw a photo photo today on Instagram of him sitting on top of a van with a microphone like at his face. So someone set up a microphone so he could sing sitting on top of his van. Sick. <laughs> I miss driving a big van everywhere. <laughs> um, totally anyway. with Jake on like just wanting to drive a big van across the country. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, this segment is about lifting people up. Like we're excited that Jake is following his dreams. Yeah. I'm not trying to bring it down. Yeah, no. I yeah, I'm very jealous of the idea that he had before this all happened to just drive his van across the country and party and play shows. So cool, Jake. And he uh for those interested, he's doing live streams from his kitchen nearly every day. Well, he's doing a runway show tonight. Oh. I I feel like I wake up and it's like Jacob Langley is live and it's him just he stares into the camera. He doesn't sing. He just plays like a riff with like a pre-recorded drum thing. And it's just like, <laughs> you want to do your trilogies? Yeah. Uh, I guess last topic for the episode is what do you think are, is the best trilogy of records by a band as in three records released 
back to back to back by the same band over any period of time. Are you counting EPs? Like TJ asked that in the group text or no? Uh, See, I didn't like the idea of EP. I, I thought full length was the way to go. I think so too. Yeah. And are we just talking like punk hardcore? Nope. No, whatever. Because I've got I've got some answers that are not hardcore related for sure. Yeah. You you start, Justin. Okay. So anyone who knows me will know that Bruce Springsteen is obviously the drawer I reach into first for that. And although I personally think that you could pick a thousand places in his career to start, I think the strongest is probably Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town, and The River all back to back. Do you guys have any feelings on those at all? I have the feeling that I, I really need to spend more time with Bruce Springsteen. I yeah. try to text text you songs all the time. I'm so, not a huge Bruce fan. I don't dislike him. It's just never been something that really appealed to me. I think that a lot of some of his appeal is the story behind his music, even if you don't care about the music. I would recommend um, all three of those records have making of documentaries in their uh, like. 30-year anniversary sets that I could lend you if you want. It's it's pretty wild because we've all made records, right? Yeah. So in between Born to Run and Darkness, he was being sued by his manager, so he couldn't release a record. So he recorded probably four records worth of stuff and then whittled it down to Darkness on the Edge of Town, and then most of the rest of it ended up on the river. It's pretty wild to think that like you just keep recording and then be like, well, I'll build this around what these songs sound like. Yeah. I'll throw out one that's probably one of the more popular ones where I would go Kerplunk, Dookie, Insomniac. That that's that's good. I like that. I think you could even go because after Insomniac is Nim Nimrod, right? You could even do Dookie Insomniac Nimrod, in my opinion. Yeah, see, I I like I would rather listen to Kerplunk than Nimrod, but I can. Yeah, absolutely. I also, I'm with you on that one. I could see also going the other way with it. Yeah. The, the older speak, I get, the the more I appreciate their mid period records. Like I think Warning and Nimrod are great records. Yeah, I still struggle with Warning a little bit. Really? Yeah. So I'm gonna throw out a couple here just because like it's probably more than a trilogy. Black Sabbath's like first. Four or five? Yeah. Not a bad record in there. Um, every Bon Scott ACDC record. Oh, that's true. I mean, up to, I would include Back in Black is still like a perfect record if like you want to be in that genre, um, which that's probably six or seven records. Oh, they all sound exactly the same, but that's why they're perfect. Um, but going, yeah. I don't know. Stone Temple Pilots' first three records are perfect, too. Sorry. It's so tricky because as you say all this now, like we primarily, the well that we all three dip into is punk and hardcore primarily. But there are so many just good rock bands that have, like Neil Young has five, six in a row that were amazing. Um, I'm looking up Aerosmith's discography now just because I can't think of how to put them in order. And they have some, like, I'd say Permanent Vacation, Pump, Get a Grip, and Nine Lives are all pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, these are, like, these bands are, like, mainstream successes who have, like, legacies, essentially. So, yeah, 
I feel like that's why they are where they are because they're just sure. Well, then let me throw out and let me throw out a no-brainer that I think uh, MC will agree with, and this is where I picked it in their discography. But Wolves won't. Uh, Out come the Wolves. Life won't wait. And Rancid 2000. I would put Let's Go on the other end too. Yeah. Yeah, Let's Go is probably perfect too. It's hard to carve three out, and it's when you pick that, are you picking like personal favorites or best uh, objective best or you know what I mean? No, because that's that's where Rancid found their groove and just fucking pumped out good solid albums. After Wait is their best written record. Yes, and it's it's my it's my least favorite of those four. Not because it's not a great record. I put second to Wolves for me. See, for me, it's Wolves and then Rancid 2000. Let's go. Life won't wait. Wolves and Rancid 2004. Man, Mm -hmm. Wolves and Rancid 2000 dance in the top spot for me, depending on my mood. Yeah. If I'm a little edgier, it's Rancid 2000. Those are great records. Yeah, I'd totally go Wolves or Wolves Life Won't Wait. Um, Let's go Rancid 2000. I know we're also men of a certain age. So I didn't listen to Rancid 2000 for a while until I had the CD version of it. And that was just in my car. And I just repeated it over and over. So there are like certain delivery methods that make records amazing, um, too, I think. I referenced this band earlier, but Strike Anywhere changes the sound to exit English to live in discontent. It's hard oh, to argue yeah. that any one of those is bad. Yeah. Do you count? Is well, that's a, to um, live in discontent? Yeah, it's technically a comp, right? Yeah, I mean, they released it as a full length, but it yeah. was a comp of what of two, of, two of their old seven, seven inches and then a couple other songs that they added. Even so, Dead FM is next after that. And we and that's still good. When we, when we spoke about it, I went back and revisited it. That thing has some fucking tracks on it. Yeah, it's good. Runner. Um, I'm going to throw this one out. This one's probably more relevant to Justin than UMC. Um, but. Boxer, High Violet, Trouble Will Find Me by the National. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, that's nice. (laughs) Damn. I wasn't even thinking in, like, that headspace. Yeah. Uh, And then there there are bands that only have three LPs out that are, I think, are all pretty perfect. Like Paint It Black or Ladderman only have three LPs. I still have, I still mostly listen to one Ladderman record. Okay. Which one? No matter where we go. Okay, try the try the last one again. Yeah. Um, so, I can't, I'm spacing on it now, but they toured on it when they re, reunited and played like most of that because they didn't get a chance to when they broke up the first time. Right. That record is is amazing. Okay, so here's that. here's three in a row that are probably my three favorites by this band: Hopeless Romantic, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, Anchors Away. I was just going there to look like to. I don't know why I thought I had to look up the order of their discography because that's goofy. But <laughs> and the gold records after that, and that's probably the last album that I have listened to the whole way through a bunch. That's a good record. Yeah, yeah. The songs they play from the other from Comet and uh, Simplicity and stuff. Simplicity. Yeah. Do you count Ghost on the Boardwalk as a full length? I count as something I don't listen to because I'd rather think, something else. Oh man, it's really good because they released it. I don't know if you guys remember. It's like song by song. 
long. Or it was seven yeah. over the course seven of the years. It's yeah. wild to think that we were around for the 20th and the 30th anniversary of that band because that was for the 20th anniversary. But um, they, uh, yeah, it was seven inches and then they collected it on that. So, like, I'd be curious. I guess when we get someone from the band on here, we can ask them if they wrote it as a full length and divvied it up or if they wrote song at a time. Yeah. But, like, yeah, those after the gold record, I listened to songs, not albums. Yeah. Steven, um, these are no brainers for us. And I don't know how we didn't think of it before. And there's, I'm just going to go with the five streak right away. Uh, Fuel for the Hate Game, Forever and Counting, No Division, Flight and the Crash, and Caution are all pretty near perfect records. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I would go Propagani, Today's Empire, Sporting um, oh, man. Cast, uh, or what Potemkin Sea Limits, Sporting Cast. When we were talking about Code Orange earlier, I was thinking about how, like, at the time I thought them dropping kids from their name was just like, hey, we're older now and we don't like this name as much anymore. They like actively distanced themselves and turned it into two bands. And um sorry, what did you just say, Stephen? What were the run of records you just said? Propagandi. Oh yeah, the Propagandi ones. So they have two completely distinct I would say that for, um today's Empires is the turning point and they haven't sounded like anything before that. Like they're two totally different bands. Oh yeah. And it's it's curious when bands do that and don't change a name or anything. Because the lineup stayed the same, other than John Sampson leaving. Another band that we re- referenced earlier, Die Fear Government, A New Kind of Army, and Underground Network. Um, yeah. Those are all great albums. After that, I can't say I've listened to a whole lot of the anti-flag discography. But those three albums were really solid oh, albums. Man. How old were you when, um, fuck, For Blood and Empire came out? I would have been 2005, 20. Yeah, it was 2006. So I would have been 25 turning 26. Man, I love all that early stuff that you just mentioned. That record like might have been the first like new anti-flag record I was there for, like that I could buy on the day it came out, whatever. That thing's awesome. It's it's a weird place in my heart. I remember going to Angry Young and Poor as a teenager on like a day I skipped school or something and some older punk or skinhead, I can't remember what heard them playing anti-flag in the shop and was like, Oh fuck you anti-flag shut up. And I was like, I'm going to check this band out because this guy doesn't like it. And I don't like old people. So fuck them. And I got into <laughs> anti-flag and then like anti-flag played York a couple times, I think with God, I can't, they, they came in support of a bigger band and then they played like as a headliner the year after on the tour for Die Fear Government um, at a amazing venue here in York called it was the big city then the Phoenix then the Zodiac and it was just a rad spot that no longer exists obviously I don't know that spot at all where was that at so it was 13 South Beaver Street and it was okay. like an upstairs spot behind like what was like little shops on the street on the like on Beaver Street and right. It was, you know, the perfect venue in my eyes because it's like a long, narrow room and they had a decent sized stage at the one end. Um, It used to be like a one foot stage on the floor. Then they built like a two and a half, three foot stage when the Michael Graves misfits came through because they wanted to make it a big deal. And um, 
I mean, it was a rad, rad venue. I think it ended up getting shut down because they were doing raves overnight and the city couldn't figure out a way to stop them other than say, going in and saying a bunch of fire code violations. And then the building sat empty until um, the a local redevelopment company bought it and gentrified the whole neighborhood. And now it is um, upscale white people businesses that last 12 months and then close and then another upscale white people business comes in and closes 12 months later because they are not actual businesses that can sustain themselves. <laughs> Sorry, so, that is MC's take on gentrification in his hometown in the year 2020. I'm going to I'm going to make it light again cuz you mentioned something that made me think. Walk Among Us, Earth AD and Stag Age. Yeah. I got or, one but, more. Which those are the three before the Graves, like you think of the Misfits as releasing so many songs with Danzig, and it might just be because those collections and shit regrouped yeah. them so many times. Yeah. Go ahead, Stephen. While Stephen's looking, um, oh, another thing. Oh, okay. Another thing that I thought of while you said that is think of the bands we think of as legendary, and think about whether they had three album runs. Like I was, because I was like, oh, there's got to be a three album run of Black Flag records. And I guess I don't. When you think about yeah. full lengths, like "Damaged in My War," but then "Family Man," "Slip It In," "Loose Nut in My Head," and then uh, what? Dead oh, Dead Kennedys, yeah. Yeah, they probably had a solid three record run. Yeah. Um, just, just for the people that know me, I want it to be known that the only artist that matters in this is the artist who released these three bangers: "Animal," "Warrior," and "Rainbow" all in a row. Kesha. <laughs> I could, I, I you're could laughing, put, but I am dead serious. I know, I know you. Are. I know you are, and I could put three Pink records in a row too, and probably defend them the same way. I wouldn't argue it because I loved Pink. My well. final one isn't nearly as cool as those two, so I don't know if I even want to say it. But, <laughs> uh, clumsy, you're freaking me out and astray by Sam. I am. All three great records. I and the, have not spent brown any... Bike. Go ahead. There's three small brown bike records also. Oh, yeah. Our, our Own Wars, Dead Reckoning, and Riverbed? Yeah. 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 Um, that's, what, that's all I got. I haven't spent any time with you or freaking me out. So... What? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So I have one more, like, like one more run of records, and I'm trying to pick the... They have probably four in a row that are great, but for sure three in a row. Nightbirds, The Other Side of Darkness, Born to Die in Suburbia, Mutiny at Muscle Beach, and Roll Credits. Yeah. I mean, I could pick the first three or the last three being great, but you put all four of them together, they're, they haven't released a bad album. I need to spend oh. more time with that band, honestly. Me too. I saw him live at Fest one year and I loved it, but then I didn't really do anything with it. So a lot of people don't like it because their choruses aren't super catchy, but like their music is amazing. I don't need choruses to be catchy. I like Drop Dead. But they also have like, like I think it's, it's <laughs> Sorry. especially Sorry. at Fest, like most fans have that chorus that everyone can sing along to really loud. And yeah, you know what right. I mean? Um, oh, I wanted to say. Do you remember when referencing back, circling back, Anti Flag 
ripped off that From Ashes Rise song so bad yeah. that people literally played them over top of each other on YouTube, and it's yep. the same song. Like the down YouTube to like how the lyrics, up. yeah, like down to how the lyrics are put over the song and everything. It's like Anti Flag definitely ripped that off. It's pretty I wild. You want to get number two on here and ask him about it? Yeah, not even from a dickhead perspective. Just like, did you know you like? Were you familiar with From Ashes Rise when you wrote this? Like you, uh -oh. they had to have been because it's not like just the verse is the same, the chorus is the same, the intro is the same. Yeah, I mean, it could could sure be parallel, parallel thinking, but it it's pretty wild. On another note, double whiskey, coke, no ice, and American Idiot. Oh yeah, do you know that, that MC? Yeah. The, the Dillinger Four song that's American yes. Idiot. Yes. Which one came first, Dillinger Four? I assume. Oh, that yep. was like late '90s, I think. Okay. Yeah. I think they. I want to say they sued him, and I Did think they, they won. I think they got a settlement. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if if I'm Green Day, I, I'm just paying those guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. Scrub. <laughs> fuck off. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm gonna pay them and be like, <coughs> fuck yeah. Actually, you know what? We probably heard that somewhere. Thought it was cool. Ripped it off. Maybe we did it like consciously. Maybe not. Here's a bunch of money. Thanks for writing a fucking great album or a great song. So I Googled Dillinger 4 Green Day lawsuit, and the first YouTube video that comes up is Dillinger 4 ripped off Green Day. Nah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, they settled out of court, it looks like. Good. That means Dillinger 4 got paid. Yeah, it means – I. you know, this could be me telling turns out of school. I want to say that – I heard that's how they got the money to open the Triple Rock. Good. Oh uh, yeah. I think that's the story I know, but I don't know. I could be, I could be talking out both sides of my mouth. Good. So if that's the if case, I, then like, then I'm happy they got paid, and also like, Green Day contributed to opening a awesome DIY venue for that area. Yep. Oh yeah. And like. I mean, that's a win-win for everybody, in my opinion. Do you think that Green Day did that on purpose so that they could help open a DIY venue because they're such great people? What a no, long con. Like, what a cool long con that would be. <laughs> no, but like if, like, I mean, if Green Day was like, "Hey, we're gonna pay you a bunch of money. Like, we hope you do something cool with it." Like, I could really see Green Day being like that because I, everything I've read about that band, they seem to be pretty willing to help out people especially in the punk rock community when necessary. Yeah. And within reason, considering their size, not dickheads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking now, like how many, so obviously riffs over top of a chord progression are a little different, but uh, there's gotta be thousands of those that go unreported that we don't know. Like rancid rips off themselves. Like the, the verse to Ruby Soho is the chorus to Olympia, Washington. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I noticed that. You probably told me that before, but I don't think I ever really. If you hadn't said it, I would have never caught on. Yeah, they're on the they're on the same record, and um, so that I mean, Rance don't reuses lyrics a lot of the time, especially yeah. on those early records. Yeah, and for the the music nerd folks, the just the one, three, four, uh, five fucking um progression like C G A F. Every fucking that's every gasoline anthem song, and it's also Journey to the End of East Bay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. when I was 
doing songs for like my first bands, like we wrote everything in like major chord progressions and then we'd do a breakdown in a minor scale and people's minds were blown that we were able to do a fucking key change. <laughs> that 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 like progression of the C G A minor F that you can move everywhere is like punk's twelve bar blues. Yeah. That's wild. I never thought about that. That's cool. All right, well, that's going to do it for us for another episode of Two Beats Off Podcast. Join us next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. See you. See you.